Dedicated to man's imagination, the theater of the mind. You know what our call letters WGN stand for, don't you? Welcome to WGN Radio Theater. Special three-hour presentation. And your hosts, Carl Amari and Lisa Wolf. All right, it's about eight minutes after 10 p.m. here on the WGN Radio Theater program. Four, seven, let's see, 457 in the series. I can read. That's a lot of shows, Carl. <laughs> this is a lot of shows. <laughs> you know what's great about uh, tonight, Lisa? We're on for the full five hours. Well, we are five. next weekend, this weekend. I, yeah. I think we're starting a new trend here. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> you know what? Um, I love having the five-hour show because... We get to play five classic radio right. shows. The, you know, the more time we're here, the more classic radio we play, and the more classic radio we discuss. The uh, Quite a lineup. We have a good Western to start things off with Gunsmoke from 1956, William Conrad as U.S. Marshal Matt Dillon. Then in our next hour, a show that was set in Chicago, although it was broadcast out of New York, but the setting was Chicago, Nightbeat. And he worked for the Chicago Star, a fictional newspaper. Good drama starring Frank Lovejoy. Then it's Murder at Midnight in a science fiction story from 1946. After that, my brother's least favorite radio show. Yeah, but not the most Great people, Gildersleeve. so it's okay. I love The Great Gildersleeve. 1942, an early episode, Hal Perry starring. And then a broadcast that originated out of this radio station in 1947 was actually performed in the performance studios of WGN. It's the Hall of Fantasy from 1947 Markham, and uh, you're going to love that. I mean, talk about... You know, broadcasting something that aired here. Yeah, that many years ago, 1947. Wow, can't wait to hear that. Good kind of mystery, supernatural story. So good lineup, Gunsmoke, Nightbeat, Murder at Midnight, The Great Gildersleeve, and The Hall of Fantasy. It's all coming your way, but first, these words. Ladies and gentlemen, The story you're about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. So this is our Just the Facts segment, sponsored by Cat's Pride, and we will be talking about 1956, which is the year of our Gunsmoke episode. Yeah, 1956, there wasn't a lot of radio, you know, sort of making its way out. TV TV was well underway. Well established. And so I would say, based on that, a world-changing event of 1956... Hmm. Elvis Presley appeared on the Ed Sullivan Sullivan Show, September 9th, 60 million viewers, which is 82.6% of TV viewers (laughs) at the time were tuning in, and the appearance garnered the show's best ratings in two years, became the most watched TV broadcast of the 1950s. So Elvis Presley was 21 years old at that time. I'm trying to remember, I think he's saying all shook up. He he uh, he's saying don't be cruel. Don't be he's cruel. saying hound dog. He's saying love me tender and a little Richard song as well. Yeah, and um, he was introduced by Charles Lawton, who was filling in oh, that night for right. Sullivan. Ed Sullivan was exactly. not on that show. He was sick, and or they something. filmed him from the waist up. They would not show his vulgar hi- hip shaking, yeah, his, as they, gyrations yeah. or whatever. They did you not. Call it. They would not film him. So this this from was the waist down. Seriously, a big event of 1956. Oh, sure. Also, as speaking of Elvis, a top song of 1956. 
Listen to those screams. This is really an emblem of the rock and roll revolution, this particular song. So this was actually on the Ed Sullivan Show, this version. This version of Hound Dog ranked number 19 on Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Also one of the best-selling singles of all time. What a song. Wow. Yeah. Big hmm. stuff. You ain't a nothing but a hound uh, oh, dog. Oh, I know it. And here's a sign of the times. Dodge. Yeah, car Dodge. Dodge sure. Produced the first car specifically marketed toward... Women. Yeah, I was so say it that. was called. Were you? Yeah, it was. Uh, I don't believe you. No, it really um, was. <laughs> the La Femme. It was called the La Femme. La Femme, La Femme. had ready a pink exterior, right. and it came with a pink umbrella and a lipstick holder. Yes, oh, are that you is kidding no, me? Uh, that is absolutely true. And the reason for the car was stemmed from their marketing department observation that more and more women were taking an interest in automobiles in the 1950s, and that women's opinions. I wonder what would happen if uh, a guy went in there and bought that car. They would be like looking at him, kind of. Like, I think today it would be perfectly hmm. acceptable. Yeah, I know. But, <laughs> but I don't know about like, that. No, it's not for me. I swear, it's for my wife, or it's for my <laughs> girlfriend, or my sister. Well, what they're realizing is. Women, uh, women's opinions on what color, not only the car, <laughs> but the color, was becoming part of the decision-making actually, process it for it couples. It literally had a lipstick holder. A lipstick holder and a pink umbrella. Now, that's very telling. Wow. I mean, look, women would no come idea. come to the door and meet their man with, with lipstick like uh, yeah. Father Knows Best. Right. Right? <laughs> <laughs> the La Femme, La Femme by Dodge. Right. You, you should... You Wasn't should, a very big seller, I don't think. I mean, Carl. I never heard of it before. I didn't either. Wow. 1956. Is that it? That's, That's it. it. For Thanks, 1956. Lisa. <laughs> uh, 1956. Yeah. Well, as we talked about earlier, TV was was the thing. You know, people yeah. were unfortunately abandoning these great classic radio shows, which is to me sad because t- you know I love these shows more than TV. Well, we won't let it happen, and that's why no. we're bringing them all back for a whole new generation. Yep. And Gunsmoke was sort of a tried and true western. It was on radio. It was on television. It still airs all the time on Antenna TV. You can see the uh, video version of the radio show we're about to, uh, about to hear. It was created by Norman McDonald and John Meston. Came to CBS Radio in 1952 and lasted all the way to 1961. So there were still several more years it was on the air here on radio. Yeah. On TV, it ran 20 years. 20 years. That's a long time for a TV series. For any series. 1955 through 1975. Now, on CBS radio... They started it out with Howard Culver to star as Matt Dillon. That was like who they wanted to play Marshall Matt Dillon. But he was already starring in another Western series called Straight Arrow. His contract would not allow him to do another Western series. So CBS actually shelved the project for three years. They were like, well, we can't get Howard Culver. We're not going to do the show. But Straight Arrow kept going on and on. They, they were going to wait for him, but then they said, you know what, let's find somebody else. They cast William Conrad. I think that was a smart move because William Conrad, I just can't really hear anyone else in that role uh, on radio as Marshall Matt Dillon than William Conrad. Howard McNear, who was Floyd the Barber on the Andy Griffith Show, mm-hmm. was Doc Adams. Georgia Ellis was Kitty Russell. Parley Bear, who was the mayor, Mayor Roy Stoner, on the Andy Griffith show, played 
Uh, and he was also the voice of the Keebler Elf. Remember those yes, commercials? Of course. Yeah, he he was the uh, deputy. He was Deputy Chester Proudfoot on the radio show. Now on TV, of course, a totally different cast. James Arness was Dylan. Milbert Stone was Doc. Amanda Blake was Kitty. Dennis Weaver was Chester. Dennis Weaver, McLeod. Remember that show? Yeah. Uh, this was an adult western. Violent crimes, scalpings, massacres, drug and alcohol addiction. I mean. This was not a kids western show, you know. Kids uh, listen to Hopalong Cassidy and Roy Rogers, Gene Autry. No, this wasn't for kids. This was an adult western. And on the first television show, John Wayne introduced the first episode and sort of introduced the newcomer, a newcomer, James Arness, who was a friend of John Wayne. That's why he wanted to sort of, you know, kind of christen the series. Um. So it was great on on radio, great on television. You're going to hear an episode now from June 3rd, 1956. This is called The Pacifist. Here is William Conrad uninterrupted now in an episode of Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West... There's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun Smoke, starring William Conrad. Transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. And the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job. And it makes a man watchful. And a little lonely. Yonder, Mr. Dillon. It's Jeb Wingate, ain't it? Yeah. I just hope he doesn't want to find some shade and talk for an hour. I want to get back to Dodge. There ain't no shade to find around here. Lessons over that little ride. Hello, Marshal. Chester. Hello, Jeb. How are you, Jeb? Hey, that's fine. You fellas are carrying lariat ropes. Oh, what's up, Jeb? You want somebody hung? <laughs> no, it ain't that. It's to help a poor fella out the other side of the mound there. He's got an old chewed-up single-tree wagon. Now his traces are busted. Well, can't he tie them together? Oh, they're too short already. I was riding over to my place for some rope, but maybe you can save me the trip. I will help him, Jeb. Is he a friend of yours? Oh, i never seen him before. Some poor, half-starved pilgrim. I feel kind of sorry for him, though. So you take care of him now. Yeah, we will, Jeb. So long. I'll be seeing you in Dodge one of these days. Goodbye. Jeb must get awful lonesome living out here all by himself, Mr. Dillon. Oh, I guess he likes it, Chester. Mm. I don't see no man with no wagon. You will in a minute. 
There he is. Hey, Jeb was sure right. And look at that horse, too. Yeah, they make quite a pair, don't they? Mm. Hello. Hello. Here, you could use some rope, mister. Here's 30 feet. That ought to do. I sure thank you. Where are you headed? Dodge, I guess. You come far? Montana Territory. Well, well, no wonder. Another fella, he just left. He was going to help me, too. You live out here? I'm the marshal in Dodge. You're looking for work? If they'll give it to me. I heard the Santa Fe's laying more track there. Well, I know the agent. Maybe I can help you. No, I wouldn't want to get you in no trouble. Trouble? I... I'll come see you. I'll fetch you another rope as soon as I can. Oh, no need for that. My name's Hook, Marshal. Arden Hook. Now, that's Chester Proudfoot, Hook. How you do? Pleased to make your acquaintance. Well, we'll be seeing you. Thank you kindly. My. He keeps looking around like you think somebody's going to hit him any minute. Well, maybe he's running from something, Chester. Say, I'll bet that's it. You suppose the law's after him? What for? Well, I don't know. Maybe he's a murderer. Oh, what? Flies? Come on. Let's do a little right. Kitty, uh, have you seen Chester? No, I haven't. Well, he was supposed to meet me here. I guess I might as well wait for him, huh? Chester's been living pretty quiet ever since you two got back to town the other day. Yeah, he's broke, Kitty. Being broke never stopped him. But there's a man who's really broke. No, who? Arden Hook. What? That fellow Sam hired yesterday over there. Haven't you seen him yet? I think he's been poor all his life. Well, what's he doing for Sam? Oh, anything. Cleans the place up, mostly. He seems to know you. Yeah, yeah, we ran into him out on the prairie. Oh, hello, Marshal. Ah, I see you made it, Hook. Thanks to you. I'll be buying you a new rope soon, Marshal. I got me a job. Ah, forget the rope. You'll need your money for food and a bed. Oh, Mr. Noonan, give me that shack out back. I can cook some there, too. Well, that's fine. Yeah, it's hey, going Sanders. to... Oh, no. Look. Well, what do you know? Excuse me, Marshal. What? Where are you going? Wait a minute, you. Yeah, it's him, all right. Who are those men, Kitty? Your Arden Bill Centers and Ed Hogler. Yes. They drift Don't in you once in a while. Don't you remember Lawrence back in 56? Matt, did I tell you that Mr. Yes, Clark... Kitty, wait a minute. I remember, I, I want to hear this. Oh. We ain't very likely to forget, are we, Centers? No. And neither is any other man who rode with us. Where you been all these years, Hook? Tell us. I've been around. All over. I can't think of a single man who's seen you in Missouri for some 20 years. I didn't mean Missouri. No, I guess you didn't. Ain't a fitting place for the likes of you, is it? We're wasting time talking to him, Hogler. You work in here, Huck? Yeah. Good. We'll have a little talk before we leave town. For old time's sake, huh? You going about your work now. We'll see you later. 
Matt's not going to do something to him. They're just a couple of riders, you say, Kitty? That's all I know about him. Well, maybe I can find out more. How? I think Hook's gone out to his room. <coughs> Excuse me, Kitty. I'll be back in a little while. Hook. Bill Centers, Ed Hogler. You heard them? Yeah, I heard them, but I don't know quite what they were talking about. It's nothing, Marshal. I used to know them, that's all. Uh-huh. In Missouri, huh? Yeah, that's right. They said something about Lawrence back in 56. They were just talking. Lawrence, Kansas, that was the first time it was raided by Missourians under General Atchison, wasn't it? You and Centers and Hogler were with him, huh? All right. I'll tell you. I was there. I raided across the border with him. I helped them sack Lawrence. I... I even killed a man. I killed him in cold blood. Marshal, he was trying to give up, and I shot him anyway. The Centers and Hogler don't hold that against you, do they? Not hardly. Oh, they knew the man. But they didn't care about that. And why are they after you, Hook? The war didn't start at Fort Sumter in 61, Marshal. It started in 56, right here in Kansas at Lawrence. So? I'll never know why I killed that man. But I swore I'd never kill another for any cause. So I run away. There are a lot of men who didn't fight, Hook. But I started out fighting, and then I quit. They don't forget that. Not Missouri, they don't. Maybe I am a coward. I don't know. But they're going to kill me, Marshal. You, uh... You're sure of that, huh? I know them. And I know what they're like. All right. Look, I want you to stay here and dodge. And get killed? And now they've found you, they'll follow you. You're safer in Dodge than you'd be anyplace else. Well, I guess so. You leave it to me. You'll be safe. He'll run off. We don't go get him soon, Hogler. Where's he gonna run to? Hogler's right. He isn't running anywhere. What? Oh, Marshal, huh? You're Hogler? You want something, Marshal? Yeah. I want you to leave Arden Hook alone. We ain't gonna bother Hook, Marshal. Not if you're smart. Little coward like that, I wouldn't feel right even touching him. What happened happened a long time ago. Why keep it alive? Was you in the war, Marshal? Yeah. Yeah, I was in the war. But it's all over, and the sooner everybody forgets about it, the better. We might have won if it wasn't for cowards like Arden Hook. All right, there's no use arguing with you. 
But Hook's going to stay here. And if anything happens to him, anything at all, I got enough evidence on you two to hang you. Too bad you found out about all this, Marshal. Yeah, I guess there's nothing we can do now, Sanders. You mean we're going to let that little card go? Yeah, we'll let him go. Who cares about him anyway? Bye, Marshal. Today, Matt. Well, that's the sun, Doc. You see, it's the sun that makes it hot. Oh, that's uh, the sun. I was only making a comment. I wasn't asking for a scientific explanation. Oh, excuse me, Doc. I didn't understand what you wanted. Yeah, I see. Well, now that you've started it, I can tell you what the heat does to some people. Oh, good. You you tell me about that, will you, Doc? Yeah. Uh, uh, oh, hello, Doc. Uh, hello, Chester. Uh, has either one of you saw Arden Hook today? No, I haven't seen him for the past few days. Why, Chester? Well, they say Jeb Wingate's looking for him. It might mean a job work, Mr. Dillon. Oh, I doubt it. Jeb's always said he'd never have anybody working for him. Well, if it ain't for a job, why would he be looking for him? Well, I figure that's Jeb's business, don't you? Yes, but... But here's Miss Kitty. Maybe she knows where he's at. I don't know why you're so concerned, Chester. Well, sir, I still think it means a job for him. Well, she's a busy-looking outfit. Yeah, how are you, Kitty? Miss Kitty, Hmm? have you saw Arden Hook anywhere is it's really important? Uh, No, Chester. Not since he left this noon. Left? For where? Well, Jeb Wingate finally found him and they left. Where'd they go, Kitty? Jeb gave him a job, Matt. He hired him on. There. See? What did I tell you, Mr. Day? See there, Doc? Didn't I tell you? What, what you did were I tell you? right, Chester, yeah. Well, I wish him luck, but I can't see Arden Hook working on a ranch somehow. He's about the last man I'd pick up. Matt, I've got an idea. Yeah, what, Doc? Well, I just remembered something. Well, tell us. It's nothing you don't already know if you just have thought of it. Yeah, but I didn't think of it, Doc. You ever hear of Lou Wingate? Uh, yeah, Jeb's talked about him a time or two. He talks about him a lot. Now, wait a minute, Doc. Lou Wingate was killed in the first raid on Lawrence in 56, That's wasn't right. It? Shot down when he was trying to give up, the way Jeb always tells us. Sanders and Hogler. They went to Jeb and told him who killed his brother. So he hired Arden Hook. Hired him so as he can have him out there alone, where there'll be no witnesses. Chester. Go get our horses. It's going to be dark before we get there now. still don't know why we left our horses way back yonder. Well, let's get behind that wagon at the side of the barn and I'll tell you. Look, 
Here's Jeb Wingate sitting with his back to the window. Yeah. Here, this ought to do it. Another reason we Mr. Dillon, somebody's coming. You think they followed us? Well, I don't know, but they weren't far behind us. Now, don't let them see you now. No, sir, I won't. We've got evil horses here. We're going on foot. That's a good idea. Hey, look at that, Sanders. Sitting duck. We can put a rifle bullet through him from here. It's Hogler and Sanders. I Be don't understand this, Hogler. Why not? Well, Jeb Wingate said he was going to kill Hook and make it look like an accident, didn't he? Yeah. Then why not let him do it? Because I want Hook killed another way. I want that smart Marshal Dillon to hang him. And I'm going to make him do it. How? Kill Wingate and everybody will think Hook done it. He's the only man who'd have a reason, ain't he? Yeah, yeah. All we got to say is he killed Wingate because he is afraid of him. Still murdered. <laughs> You're smart, Hoogler. I like the idea of Marshal Dillon having to hang him. Go ahead, shoot. I'm going to move out there, Chester. You stay here. Right in the back. I got the drop on you, Hoogler. It's Arden Hook. He's got a rifle. Put that rifle down. Where'd you come from, Hook? I heard your horses coming in. I heard most of what you were telling sinners. He's going to shoot us, Hoogler. I wouldn't shoot nobody. You ought to know that. And what's the rifle for? I'll shoot in the air to warn Wingate. I'll kill you, you do that. Maybe. But you won't kill Wingate. There's two of us, Hook, and I can... All right, that's enough, Hooker. Mr. Marshal, get him. Don't shoot, Marshal. Don't shoot. Then drop your gun, Sutters. Sure, sure. Chester. Yes, sir. Go get Wingate. Yes, sir, I'll get him. Killed Hogler, Marshal. Yeah, I killed him. So one of centers isn't dead, too. I wasn't going to do nothing. I didn't want anybody to die. They'd have killed you and Wingate both if I hadn't stopped him. I was about to warn him. I was all ready to shoot. It's too late. I wasn't going to shoot Wingate, Marshal. Honest. The court can't decide that, centers. Marshal? Hello, Jeb. Chester started telling me what this is all about. Never heard of nothing like it. Yeah? Well, Arden Hook was ready to give his life for you, Jeb. I know. And I ain't very proud of myself, Marshal. You got no cause to be. You know, I'd throw you in jail, but you haven't done anything yet. I... I want to do something. Yeah, what? Hook, I didn't bring you out here for a job. I know. But, well, I'm offering you one now, if you'll stay. I ain't sure I'm strong enough for this kind of work. I don't know how to tell him, Marshal. Why don't you tell him that you've got that kind of strength? Tell him it takes a different kind of strength to be a brave man. Thank you, Marshal. Will you stay, Hook? Yeah, yeah, I'll stay. Hey, 
You know, the frontier was buffalo hunters, trail drivers, and cowboys on the prod. But never a place for families. Yet next week, a father comes to Dodge looking for his daughter. A daughter whose name is Kitty Russell. And that was the West. Good night. Gunsmoke. Produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Bill James. Featured in the cast were Vic Perrin, Harry Bartell, James Nusser, and Paul Dubois. Parley Bear is Chester, Howard McNair is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Join us again next week for another specially transcribed story on Gunsmoke. That's Gunsmoke, one of the best westerns of the golden age of radio and TV, which is so great because I think there's like six or seven hundred episodes that I have in my uh, library of Gunsmoke, and we air it a lot here on the WGN Radio Theater. But then it ran 20 years on television, Lisa, and now then we can uh, watch the TV versions on, on antenna, antenna TV, TV, yeah, with James Arness, and he did a great job as you know U.S. Marshal Matt Dillon. It's not easy because it was established on radio with William Conrad and the cast that they had, and then CBS, when they brought it to television, decided to recast everyone. And there was they they actually did test William Conrad and the other people. In fact, I have some pictures. In fact, there's a picture up at our website. WGNRadioTheater.com, there's a picture of William Conrad in in the garb, right? right. They actually did a, uh, and they did it at um, like some farm or something like that. I can't remember where. But Harry Bartell, who was one of the cast members, took the photos. And this was sort of a test to see, you know, would they look like the part. But the problem was William Conrad, he was a shorter guy. Even, well, you understand was, how that is. <laughs> he was a shorter guy, and he was, you know, a little bit overweight. Okay, <laughs> I didn't say anything. <laughs> a little bit overweight, and the producers were like, "Nah, you know, this isn't going to work." Now later, he had a very long career on television. He was Cannon. Remember that of series? Of course, yeah. He was a detective Cannon, and he was also Nero Wolf 
on radio for a while. But, of course, Nero Wolf was like, you know, he operated out of his brownstone and just sent Archie Goodwin out to uh, do all the sleuthing. He would just sit around and eat. Right. You know, which would be Again. great. Imagine <laughs> making a living just sitting around and eating and sending people. Uh, that'd be great. Yeah. I would do that. I know you would. But anyway, um, they so they decided, you know, these people... Aren't yeah, quite he, it. They're not. They're not it. So let's go find. And they. I think. I think James Arness was six six. He was one of the tallest actors on television. He played, you know, Marshall Matt Dillon on TV. Did a tremendous job. And Dennis Weaver is, you know, Chester and all that. So I hope you enjoyed Gunsmoke. Let's take a quick break. Then it's more on the WGN. I need four seasons in here. It's awfully cold in the studio, Lisa. Are you cold? She's always putting the... Oh, wait, what's the song? You know the song. Oh, wait. Come on. Come on. Oh, yeah, I know this song. Yeah, you do. This is the girl, Limpanina. Oh, yeah. It's a great tune. Let's listen to a few seconds of it here. This is Stan Getz and Astrid Gilberto. Isn't there an English version of it, though? You don't understand it? No. Are you having trouble? This is the English version. No, it's not. No, this is a Spanish version or something. It is Spanish. It's nice, though. It is good. Makes me want to do the doing a little cha-cha. rumba. The rumba or the cha-cha-cha. Cha-cha-cha. Yeah. Why is it so cold in the studio? I'm not cold. It's freezing. Maybe you need to eat a little more. Warm up a little. <laughs> hey, uh, you know, the... Uh, there are there are five classic radio shows. If people love classic radio, there's five shows waiting for for our listeners at our website. It's a brand new website, 100radioshows.com. Just go to that website, 100, so the 100radioshows.com, and uh, put your email in, and you will be sent instantly five awesome-sounding classic radio shows. Richard Diamond, Private Detective with Dick Powell. Suspense with, I think, Gregory Peck is in that episode. We have um, we Gun have Smoke. Gunsmoke with William Conrad. We have Fibber McGee and Molly, Jim and Marion Jordan, and then um, Gunsmoke. <laughs> what's the other one? There's five Jack of Benny. Them. Yeah, Jack Benny. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you know what? It's our way of thanking you for listening to this radio show. Go to one hundred radioshowscom dot com. Get your five free shows while you're there. You can peruse hundreds of other classic radio shows available. And if you decide you want to buy any of them, make sure that you use the promo code RADIO at checkout. Because if you do, you will see that you'll get a discount of 70%. So great way to build your library uh, and save a ton of money doing it at 100radioshows.com. Yeah, I was going to say, either way, go to the website and grab those five free radio shows and enjoy them. Yeah, they're yours as a thank you for listening to this program. You know... um, Today, earlier, was the very first spring training game for the Cubs, and they won 12-2. They beat the uh, Astros. And um, 
I guess um, I guess David Ross, the new manager, he was he was under the weather. He had the flu or something, so he couldn't manage his first game. But I guess Chris Bryant's going to be the leadoff man. That's pretty cool. And then um, tomorrow, two o'clock game, Cubs play the Dodgers. But I thought because spring training is in full bloom here, we would uh, we'd play a, a classic radio routine, one of the most famous. It's a baseball routine. I think you might know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Here's Bud Abbott and Lou Costello with a Who's On First. Well, Costello, I'm going to New York with you. You know, Bucky Harris, the Yanks manager, gave me a job as coach for as long as you're on the team. Look, Abbott. If you're a coach, you must know all the players. I certainly do. Well, you know, I, mean, I never met the guys, so you'll have to tell me their names, and then I'll know who's playing on the team. Oh, I'll, I'll tell you their names, but you know, strange it may seem they give these ball players nowadays very peculiar names. You mean funny names? Strange names, pet names, like Dizzy Dean and His brother Daffy, Daffy Dean. And their French cousin. French? Gouffet. Gouffet Dean. Oh, I see. <laughs> well, let's see, we have on the bags, we have who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find I out. I say, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. Are you the manager? Yes. You're going to be the coach, too? Yes. And you know the fellow's name? Oh, I should. Well, then who's on first? Yes. I mean, the fellow's name. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first base. Who? The guy playing first. Who is on first? I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. That's it. That's who? Yes. (laughs) You got a first baseman? Certainly. Who's playing first? That's right. When you pay off the first baseman every month, who gets the money? Every dollar of it. (laughs) All I'm trying to find out is the fellow's name on first base. Who? The guy that gets the money. That's it. Who gets the money on first base? He does. Every dollar. Sometimes his wife comes down and collects it. Who's what? Yes. When you sign up the first baseman, how does he sign his name to the Who? contract? The guy. Who? How does he sign his That's name? That's how he signs it. Who? Yes. <laughs> what's the guy's name on first base? No, what is on second base? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? One base at a time. Well, I'm nobody. Take it easy, buddy. I'm only asking you, who's the guy on first base? That's right. Okay. All right. <laughs> Naturally. 
ball to first base, somebody's got to get it. Now, who has it? Naturally. Who? Naturally. Naturally? Naturally. So I pick up the ball and I throw it to naturally. No, you don't. You throw the ball to who? Naturally. That's different. That's what I said. You're not saying that. I throw the ball to naturally. You throw it to who? Naturally. That's it. That's what I said. You asked me. I throw the ball to who? Naturally. Now, you ask me. You throw the ball to who? Naturally. That's Same as you. Most famous routine, probably in all of classic radio, right there. Who's on first? And they, you know, they didn't perform it that often on radio, maybe once or twice a year only. They wanted to keep it fresh, you know, and they did perform it in a couple of their movies and once or twice on television. But it's really what they're known for. They were on the Kate Smith shows before they had their own radio show. They came up with that routine, and they had writers helping them, of course. They came up with that routine. They did it on the Kate Smith show once or twice, and it landed them. It was so popular, it landed them their own radio show. You know, I know a couple years back, we have been to various high schools and rotary events, yeah. and we always chose this show to introduce people to you know, classic radio yeah. who may or may not have... Uh, been introduced to it, but everybody, you know, seems to have some type of a memory with Abbott and Costello. Yeah, as soon as they, as soon as uh, uh, anybody hears it, yep. they they can relate to it and, and they love it. And I hope you just love listening to it just now. All right, in our next hour, Night Beat, then after that, Murder at Midnight, then The Great Gildersleeve, and The Hall of Fantasy. We'll be here till 3 o'clock in the morning playing all your favorite classic radio shows as we do every Saturday from 10 p.m. till 3 a.m. So stay with us. We'll be back after these words right here on WGN. Oh, the shark bait has such teeth there and it shows them pearly white Just a jackknife has old Maggie Heath there and it keeps it up out of sight You know when that shark bites With his teeth big Scarlet billows Start to spread Fancy gloves though Where's old Maggie Heath big So there's never Never a trace of red Now on the sidewalk huh? Ooh, Sunday morning, uh-huh Lies a body Just oozing life And someone sneaking Round the corner Could that someone Be Mac the Knife I tell you, a song like this, Lisa, they don't make them like this anymore, you this know? This is a forever classic. Wow, Mac the Knife. Mac the Knife, that's Bobby Darin. Yeah, it sure is. Uh, yeah, I tell you what, they it made me kind of like dancing in my 
my chair here I a little bit. I saw that over there. You got to yeah. snap your fingers while you do it, though. You got to keep the beat I, there. I, I'm not coordinated enough to dance and snap my fingers I know, it's at the same lot. time. Mayor Lightfoot promising to revitalize the South and West Side. Joe Donlin goes to Pullman to see how the money is being spent. WGN TV investigates Monday at nine. Um, you know what? So we're gonna do. Uh, should we do our uh, a game right after these? Uh, quick, we're gonna do a game. Yeah, well, it's that's a not, segment. It's not our game. It's kind of a historical segment. And we're also gonna play Nightbeat right. with uh, Frank Lovejoy. Great thing about this show. It'll sound like it's taking place in Chicago because they, they right. talk about, you know, the Chicago Windy City Star. and they, they mention the streets and things like that. Um, he was a reporter for the Chicago Star and he his beat was the night beat and he would go out there, try to find human interest stories. So a very cool radio show. That's coming your way right after these words. Ladies and gentlemen. The story you're about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. This is Just the Facts, sponsored by Cat's Pride. We've got some historical facts from 1950, which is the year of our radio show, Nightbeat, that we are about to play. And in 1950, James Dean, an undiscovered actor, makes an appearance in a his first appearance. It's a Pepsi commercial. So he's dancing with other teens around a jukebox. That was his very first appearance. That was his first gig, huh? Yeah, Pepsi. Wow. So he later filmed uh, three films. Do you know what they are? Well, I know uh, Rebel Without a Cause. Right, um, 1955. Giant. Yes, in 1956. And there was one other one. East of Eden was yeah, also East in of Eden, 1955. Right. Of course, he died at age yeah. 24. Yep. In a car crash before East of Eden Driving or Giant opened. Spider. Was that right? Mm-hmm. So he became the first actor to receive a posthumous Academy Award nomination for hmm. Best Actor, and uh, the only actor to had two posthumous acting nomina- nominations. Oh, mm. really? He was. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Beetle Bailey, a comic strip created by cartoonist Beetle Mort Bailey. Beetle Bailey mm-hmm. created by cartoonist Mort Walker. I used to read that. As Beetle a kid. Bailey, I remember to too. Yep. So it was published beginning September fourth of nineteen fifty. Set in a set in a fictitious United States Army post. Right. Do you remember Beetle that? Beetle Bailey, of course. So in the years before his death, Mort Walker's be- death in two thousand eighteen, he was ninety four. By the way, mm. it was among the oldest comic strips still being produced by its original creator, Mort Walker, of wow. course, and then his sons, he has three sons, are continuing the the comic strip after his death. Oh, okay, wow. Yeah, which is very, very nice and owed, it to, is. and owed to him. And an influential song of the year, let's hear it. You know this song, what Good Night Irene? Oh, I, Good Night Irene. Good Night Irene. This is good night, a, Lisa. Good night, Irene. This is by the Weavers, and their cover of "Good Night, Irene" shot up on the Billboard bestseller chart. So this shot for up six months. This was like a big hit. This, this was song? a big hit. Six months, it peaked at number one. Number one. Really? So I should have been a songwriter back then. I would have been a multimillionaire. <laughs> well, after their success, uh, many other artists released released versions of this song, including. Frank Sinatra's cover. It was released a month after The Weavers, lasted nine weeks on the Billboard magazine bestseller chart. That one peaked at number five. Speaking of Sinatra. Yep. You know it's on at 6.30. 6.30 to 9 o'clock, Sinatra hours with our friend Dave Plyer. Dave Plyer. 
Don't so, miss yeah, that. Check it out. It's doing really great, and it's a yeah, lot of fun. Yeah, I heard their hear. ratings are, are yes. great. Yes. And just so you know, they changed the line and make it a little more tame. It started with, I'll get you in my dreams, replaced it with, I'll see you in my dreams. <laughs> see how one word I'll can change I'll get you in my dreams meeting? sounds like a nightmare. I'll, I'll get, get you in my dreams. Yeah. So, All right. yeah, one word makes a big difference. Don't forget to uh, to go to our website 100 radio shows get free uh, five free classic radio shows 100 radio shows.com um, you know what nightbeat I love the show you know I almost named our syndicated radio show nightbeat nightbeat remember we were talking about names we to call were, the show we were talking and about I was names. like let's call it nightbeat honestly I think that's better than what we came up with <laughs> <laughs> well nightbeat was a uh, a very very good radio show it only lasted a couple years but it had all the ingredients for a successful show, and it was. Frank Lovejoy was the star. He was a big movie star, and right. they got him for a radio. He played Randy Stone, a reporter who covered the Nightbeat in uh, in Chicago for the Chicago Star. And listeners were invited to join Stone as he searched through the Windy City for the strange stories waiting for him in the darkness. So just think about that. Cool, right? A little scary. He'd go out there and... He'd, he'd really he'd meet all kinds of people on the streets of Chicago, many of them in need of his help, and then he would write about them for his, his story. Now, Nightbeat, with Lovejoy as Stone, was filmed for a TV episode of Four Star Playhouse in 1953. Now, that episode served as a pilot for a proposed series, but ultimately was not ever produced. And I think it could have been a really cool TV series. Well, so there if you, you go, want to Carl. produce something, <laughs> that's your next venture. Yeah, it should. I mean, it would be great. I mean, uh, I'm trying to think who would who would be Randy Stone. Let me think who would get uh, who would we get? Maybe like uh, you're going to say Christian Salty. No, he's already on Chicago Fire. Now you'd probably get somebody like. Um, Hmm, let me think about this. Carl Amari? I was yeah. thinking the same thing. Him? I don't think they could get him, though. Well, he's expensive, but yeah. worth it. I think he'd probably do it, though. He might. If anybody <laughs> wanted to <laughs> produce the show. All right, well, how about Frank Lovejoy? That'll he's not work. around anymore, though. But <laughs> no, we have a broadcast for you now from February 27, 1950. It's called The Girl in the Park. Uninterrupted, here is Night Beat. Night Beat. Hi, this is Randy Stone. I cover the Night Beat for the Chicago Star. Stories start many different ways. This one started, strangely enough, with the flame of a match whose feeble glow lit up a lightened face in the darkness. A frightened face twisted by an agonizing fear of death. Night Beat, starring Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone. The night is a thief, some poet once wrote, that steals the colors from the day. It's kind of pretty if you like words, but for my doll, they're not exactly true. Because there are colors at night. The burning red of passion, the angry green of jealousy, and the ugly, terrifying black of fear. 
This was one of those nights when pickings were slim. I'd cover the town from Henrici's Bar in the Mart, out to Hyler's on the North Shore, and back downtown again with nothing to show for it. I was taking a shortcut through Lincoln Park to pick up my car. At that time of night, the park was pretty deserted, except for this girl walking up ahead of me. Not a bad silhouette, I might add, against the distant light. We were about halfway through the park when suddenly she stopped and threw herself onto a bench at the side of the path. There was something almost desperate about the way she did it. I ran up to her. <sighs> Excuse me, are you all right? Yes, I'm all right. Well, I thought maybe you were sick or something. I told you I'm all right. Will you please let me alone? Oh, now look, lady, it's not what you think. I, uh... Well, this park, at this time of night, it's no place for a girl to sit around by herself. I don't need any help. Just go away. Oh, sure, sure. I'll get lost. I can see you're all right. Only you don't mind if I just sit here and smoke a cigarette before I go. It's a public park. I don't care what you do. Thank you. You care for a cigarette? No. Of course, in order to really enjoy a smoke, you've got to have a match first. <laughs> I said in order to enjoy a smoke, you've got I to... heard you. Here. Thank you. Here. Keep the book. No, no, you better hang on to these. I won't need them. Well, you might need them later tonight. After tonight, I won't need anything. Oh, now, wait a minute. That's no way to talk. The only time you're not going to need anything, sister, is after you're dead. Why did you say that? What? That about being dead. For no reason. Why? Because after tonight, I will be. The girl jumped up and started running. Here was a kid that was afraid. Afraid of death or afraid of life. But then, isn't everybody... I turned the matchbook over and looked at the ad on the cover. Penguin Club. A little all-night jump and jive place over on Clark Street. That's one I've been missing lately. On a hunch, I ambled up North Avenue in that general direction, turned up Clark a ways, and there it was. It was good to get inside out of that wind. Check your hat and coat, mister? No, thanks. I'm just looking around. Can I get you a table? It's almost the end of the floor show. Well, anywhere in the back will be all right. Okay. The hat check girl, hostess or whatever she was, walked me through the bar to the edge of the main room. And then I stopped and really did a take. Out in the middle of the dance floor, under a little baby spot singing in front of a five-piece band, was Little Miss Desperate from the park. Nice voice, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. Who is she? Oh, that's Franny. Fran Fowler. Haven't you been in here before? Not for quite a few months. Of course, she hadn't got much experience yet. From out of town, hmm? Someplace over in Wisconsin. Not bad looking, huh? In everything. Hey, what's wrong with her? She, I don't know. I can't! Well, how do you like that? Come on, come on, let's get the little girl a great big hand. Nothing like a real sad song to wind up a real sad act. Especially for a real sad tomato type tomato. <laughs> Hello, Tommy. This is Tommy Mason. Ain't he the one? Yes, yes, he's quite the one, all right. Gee, Tommy, you, you sure covered up for Franny, all right. Never let down. Keep him going all the time. That's show business. You know how it is, mister. Oh
Mister. He's this way all the time. What a joker. Now, uh, look, about that girl. Franny? Yeah, Franny. What seems to be the trouble? Well, that's hard to say, pal. Maybe she just found out she ain't no Dinah Shore, and she sure ain't. <laughs> Tommy, you killed me. Now, seriously, fella. <laughs> fella, why would a girl break up that way in the middle of her number and start to cry? Ah, uh, could be she got a cinder in her eye. But just to make sure, I'll go ask her. See you later, Tommy. Come on, fella. How's about buying a girl a drink? Oh, sure, sure, in a minute. Um, about this Franny. Look, do we have to talk about her? I, I thought you came in here for some fun. Maybe I get my fun wondering about people. What time's the next floor show? Next one's a two, then four. Oh, they're not kidding about this all-night business. And still another one at daylight. She's singing all of them? How should I know? She missed most of the 12 o'clock show. Just got here for that last number. Any idea where she lives? A room in house around an eerie street. Know the number? 391. You know you ask an awful lot of questions. <laughs> well, that's my business. I'm a reporter, Randy Stone. I might have known it. Look, you're, you're not going to bother her tonight, are you? Of all nights? Tonight? This is the night that Charlie Dane is being executed down at Joliet. What's that got to do with her? Well, how would you feel? Look, Mr. Stone, she's human. This is the night her boyfriend's gonna die. I went up to the front of the bar to a phone booth and called the paper. There was something about this in the back of my mind somewhere. Something I ought to remember, but couldn't. I had the girl on the board put me through to Gabby in the library. Library? Oh, hello, Gabby. This is Randy. Yeah, Randy? Uh, what have you got on the Charlie Dana case? Still a little early, Randy. Execution's not set until 1.30. No, no, I mean old stuff. Oh, I got the file right here, Randy. Dug it out earlier for background. Good. Anything on a girl named Fran Fowler? Yeah, let's see. Charlie Dana... Small-time gambler killed a guy named Donnelly. Oh, yes, yes. I remember that. A gambling beat. Execution originally set for November, but he got a couple of months' stay. Oh, here she is, Fran Fowler. Singer in a nightclub was supposed to be his alibi, but the DA blew her up on the witness stand. She admitted she wasn't positive about when she'd been out with the guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was it. I knew it was something. Anything more? Oh, details, Randy, details. Okay, Gabby, thanks. I'll catch up with you. Oh, Mason. Excuse me, were you waiting to use the phone? Uh, no, I was uh, waiting to talk to you. Why, certainly, but this time, no jokes, if you don't mind. I'm expecting a headache. <laughs> You're not funny, Stone. Who are you talking to? Well, isn't that uh, kind of my business? Uh, Peggy says you're a reporter. Yes, of a sort. You were asking about Fran, where she lived? That's right. You've got to let her alone, see? You printed enough about her. Uh, just a minute, Mason. Those are my lapels that you're hanging on to. Peggy shouldn't have given you Fran's address. I don't want you bothering her. I said let go of my lapels, funny man, or something's liable to explode in your face. <laughs> now you stay out of my way or I'll ruffle that shiny hair. Where are you going? See about a cinder in a lady's eye. You're not going to see her. I won't let you. Can't you see this whole thing's driving her crazy? Tommy, believe me, I'm not interested in harming her or anyone. I'm just a guy trying to do a job. Well, if you'll step out of my way... You're please. not going there. I won't let you. I won't let Sorry, you. Sorry, you ask for it. My, my, that's a real nervous fella. Now that he'd made such an issue out of it, going around to see Fran Fowler was a definite must on my schedule. I picked up my car and drove over to Erie Street. 391 wasn't much different from any of the rest of the rooming houses on the block. I got the number of her room from the mailbox and started down the dingy corridor to room 8. I knocked at the door, but there was no answer. I knocked again, and then... 
I smell gas. Hey, anyone in there? Miss Fowler! Friend! I put my shoulder to the door and the flimsy lock snapped open. I rushed into the gas-filled room holding my breath until I could smash open the window and let in some air. And then I saw Fran Fowler, the girl from the park, lying across the bed. And on the table beside her, one of those two burner gas stoves with both jets wide open. I turned them off and started shaking the girl. Miss Fowler, Franny, come on, get up. You gotta get out of here. Look, I'm gonna have to carry you. Put me down. You little fool, this room is filled with gas. Not my purse. Where? On the table. Okay, I've got it. Oh. Fine thing with a gun in it. Give that to me. Outside, baby, outside. It was six seconds flat when we hit the sidewalk in the fresh air. I put Fran in the front seat of my car and then ran around and climbed in behind the wheel. I headed out to Sheridan Road along the lake. The cool, clean air felt good in my lungs and I could see Fran drinking it in, realizing now how close she'd been. I didn't make her talk until we were a long way out of town. Then I pulled over to the beach side of the road and killed my motor. We, uh, seem to keep bumping into each other in the strangest places tonight. I... I guess I should say thanks. No, no, not at all. I'm the one who should say thanks. I still haven't returned your matches. Please don't make fun of me. No, I'm not. You see, I know now who you are. Charlie Dana's girl. Why don't you say it? In my book, you're just a kid I met in the park. What time is it? It's quarter to two. Then... Yes, it's probably all over by now. Like me to turn on the radio and... No. No, I don't want to hear about it. You must love him an awful lot. Love him? I despise him. But still you were willing to alibi for him on a murder charge? I wasn't. I, I told him I wasn't sure of the time I was out with him, but he made me say it was the exact hour when the man was killed. Didn't you realize you might have been perjuring yourself? I didn't lie. I just didn't remember. It might have been like you said... When you're not sure, what else can you do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How'd you happen to get mixed up with him? I... I didn't know anybody when I first came here. I was lonesome. And he was nice to you. He was. A lot more decent than most of the men who want to take you out when you're working in a club. And why do you hate him now? I didn't know what he did. A lot of people gamble. I didn't think too much about it. Then we got to going out evenings between shows at the club on my nights off. And the killing happened when you and he were supposed to have been out someplace together? That's what he said. He wasn't arrested until a few weeks after the... the trouble. I couldn't remember if I'd been with him during that particular time or not. Well, it's all over now. You did what you had to. That's about all any of us can do. But you've got to forget about it. Put it out of your mind. There's nothing more to worry about. Oh, that's just it. You don't understand. There is. What are you talking about? He promised. He promised, and I know he'll keep his promise. Promised what? I... I want to see him in prison. In the death house? I had to. I wanted him to understand, but he said I tricked him. What, by telling the truth on the witness stand? He said I double-crossed him, and... but now he, he didn't care. Why would he say that? He said he didn't care because the night he died, I would die. And I'm afraid. <laughs> You are listening to Nightbeat, starring Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone.
This was real. This was no act. The sounds she made would tear you to pieces. Like some pitifully frightened animal who'd lost everything in the world. I let her cry it out. After all those months of strain, she'd have to get it out of her system. He said the night he died, I died. Sure, sure. So you were scared. Who wouldn't be? But don't you see, that's just a cruel boast made by a cheap hoodlum who's trying to hurt you, make you feel responsible for his own plight. But he meant it, I know he did. Well, maybe he did at the time, but you've got nothing to worry about now. You had nothing to do with it. He paid for his own crime. Now he's dead, and you're still alive. He'll keep his promise. How can he? He's dead. I, I, I know you think I'm crazy. No, 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 no. But has anyone really tried to harm you? Oh, but this... This wasn't the night he was supposed to... Yes, I know. The execution was originally set for November. It was that night in November. I hadn't been afraid before. I thought it was like you said, because it was bitter. But all that day, I was upset. I, I told him at the club I couldn't work. And late in the afternoon, I got a note from Peggy saying, why didn't I go up to her cabin at the dunes for a couple of days? Nobody would bother me, you know, reporters, and I, I could get a good rest. So I, I drove out there that evening. It was quiet. Nothing around. Just empty sand dunes and her cabin all alone on the edge of the lake. I, I called Peggy at the club to let her know I got in all right. Oh, hello, Fran. Where are you calling from? Why, from your place. My apartment? No, your cabin. At the dunes? I was swell of you, Peggy, to let me come out here. Well, of course, Franny. You're, you're welcome to use the place, but I, I don't quite know what you mean. Well, your note this afternoon telling me to come out here. I didn't write you any note. Oh, come on, Peggy, you did. You even told me where the key would be, under the flower pot. But, kid, that's where we always keep it. Everybody knows that. Peggy, I... I... Now, don't worry about it, kid. One of the girls probably sent you the note and just hasn't had a chance to tell me about it yet. I should have thought of it myself no, in the first place. No, wait, Peggy. I'm scared. Well, what in the world else? You remember what I told you about what... But Charlie said the last time I saw him, Prison? it was about tonight that he said when he died. Cut I... it, Franny. Now cut it before you drive yourself. Peggy, back. I'm all alone and I'm scared. I don't know what to do. Franny, you you gotta hang up right away. You shouldn't be out there all alone tonight. Get in your car and come back to town as fast as you can. I'll I'll wait for you here. All right, Peggy. All right. I hung up the phone and ran out of the house to my car. I turned on the ignition key and stepped on the starter. It wouldn't start. My car wouldn't start. I looked at the gas gauge. Empty. Somebody had drained the gas out of my car. I got out in a panic and started toward the highway. But there was a car out there. Parked behind a big sand dune. I turned and ran back to the house. It was like some crazy, frightening nightmare. I didn't know what I was doing, but... Somehow I managed to get inside and lock the door. And then suddenly I was at the telephone. Operator? Operator, answer me. Operator, you've got to answer. I want the police. Operator, please help me. Someone. Operator! There was no use. The line was dead. While I was outside, someone had pulled the wires away from the wall crawled over the window, looked out to the highway. There was a car out there. Its lights were on. But as I looked, 
They went out. And now, I was alone. In the dark. With him, out there. I, I must have passed out. When I came to, it was morning, and, and Peggy was there. She and Tommy had driven out after the club closed to, to find me. But you see, you didn't die that night. But neither did he. Could have been your imagination, you know, this man in the car. No, no, no. The news about this day of execution was on the radio. The man in the car must have heard it and gone away. Did you call the police? They didn't believe me. Just because I'm a nightclub singer, they said I was trying to get publicity. How about the car not starting and the telephone being dead? According to them, my car was just out of gas, and I must have pulled the telephone wires off the wall myself. In the panic you were in, you could have. But I didn't. I tell you, I didn't. All right, all right. Anyway, it's tonight that we're concerned with. I don't know what to do. I... I just don't know what to do. Well, if it's true, this fear you have, you've got to find it out tonight. If you don't, it'll haunt you the rest of your life. Oh, I know, I know, but how? You've got to go back to your room. Oh, no, I'm afraid. I'll be with you. I've still got your gun, remember? By the way, what were you going to do with that? I... I didn't have the nerve to use it. Even on myself. Well, if anything is going to happen, it'll happen tonight. Not tomorrow or any time after that, but tonight. We'll go back to your place now and wait. Until it's daylight. I drove Fran back to the rooming house on Erie Street. There were no lights on anywhere in the building. We tiptoed down the empty corridor to Fran's room, listened at the door a minute, and went in. The door closed all right, but it wouldn't lock. I must have sprung it when I forced the door. We settled down and waited. For what? Once I thought I heard steps on the sidewalk far out front. It was that still. And then I did hear steps, slowly coming down the hall. There's someone... in the hall. Keep it down. Nothing to be sorry about. I was kind of scared myself. It's a funny thing about fear. It's catching. Look out the window. I... It's almost light. And this all night has gone for good. You see? It was all in your mind. Things you were frightened of. It was nothing, really. You won't be afraid if I go now. No. I've caused you an awful lot of trouble. Oh, no, you've cut the house. You'll get me going. And the kids at the club, I guess I should go back there and let them know I'm all right. What the doctor ordered for you is a little shut eye. I'll stop by on my way and give them a word. Good night. Good night. Oh, here's your gun. You might want to pawn it for a couple of pair of nylons. Yes? A real nice tomato-type tomato, as the funny man at the club would say. On the way over, I got thinking about him and that girl, Peggy. 
Come to think of it, that was one point Fran had forgotten to clear up for me about the note that sent her out to Peggy's cabin at the dunes that night. Yeah, my mind wouldn't let go of that. When I got to the club, it was daylight, and they were folding up the joint, and Peggy was sitting alone at the bar. Well, you got a nerve coming back here after... How's your boyfriend? He's not my boyfriend. It's a figure of speech. Where is he? He just left. Okay, I'll settle for you. If you don't mind, it's a little late for small talk, mister. Okay, I'll give it to you fast. It's about that note you wrote to Fran Fowler last November on the night Charlie Dana was supposed to die. What note? <laughs> a little late for small talk, remember? I don't know what you're talking about. You don't know anything about a note inviting Fran to stay out at your place at the dunes? I told her. I didn't know who wrote it. Were you telling the truth? Yes. Yes, I was. Okay, okay. Maybe you were. But you found out later who wrote it, didn't you? No, I... Now, tell me the truth. Or would you rather tell the police? All right. I did find out, but it wasn't like you think. Well, who was it? Tommy. Tommy Mason. Tommy Mason? The funny man? His idea of a joke, no doubt. A hilarious joke that might have scared a poor kid to death. No, no, you're wrong. It wasn't a joke. Well, then why? Why did he do it? Because he's in love with her. He made me swear I wouldn't tell her. He, he wanted to wait until the time when she needed him, and, and then he'd tell her himself. Until she needed him? That's how is he going to make her need him? Use a condemned murderer's empty threat to frighten her out of her sanity so she'd need him? Is he crazy? He is where Fran's concerned. Where is he? I don't know. He's been like a maniac all night since you left here. After every show, he's gone over to Fran's place looking for her. He's crazy, jealous. Jealous? Of whom? Of you. He thought she was with you. Well, what if she were? This was the night. This was the night he was sure she would need him, and instead she turned to you. Don't you see? Yes, I do now. Thanks. about a half mile to France, but it seemed more like 20 miles until I turned off Clark up Erie Street and slammed into the curb. There was Owen on the street. I was hoping he'd walk and I'd pass him on the way, but there was no one. I ran down the narrow hall, not daring to think what I'd find, and I flung open the door. Oh. Are you alone? Well, you... You frightened me. Are you alone? Well, yes, I've been sitting here since you left. I'm too tired to undress. Come on, let's get out of here. Grab your coat. But Never where? mind, never mind, never mind. I'll tell you on the way. I shoved Fran out the door and we started cautiously back down the hall. We got about halfway when I grabbed her arm. The front door was opening slowly and a man made a dark silhouette against the gray light of the dawn. It was the funny man. The man with the slick, shiny hair and the permanent smile and the fast jokes. Only the smile was gone and he had a gun in his hand. Keep coming. Keep coming. We started towards him slowly. Tommy. Tommy, it was you. You who were going to kill me. You didn't know. You didn't know that I had a heart too, just like Charlie Dana did. Tommy, you never told me. You never let me. You didn't need me. You would have laughed at me like you laughed at my jokes. It couldn't have been you at the dunes that night. I followed you out there. And then drove back to the club. No, Tommy, no. You were lonesome, but you didn't need me. You needed Charlie Dana. I thought if you were afraid, you'd need me. And then you were afraid, but still you didn't need me. But I'd make you need me. I'd make you. Step by step, we moved closer. Keep coming. I could see his face twisted with jealousy and hate, his eyes wild, as though a spark might make him explode. And tonight, when you were afraid and should have needed me, you didn't. You turned to him. Tommy, please. But now you need me. 
Now that I have my finger on this trigger, you need me more than you've ever needed anyone in your life. You need me. You need me, Franny. You need me. Say it. Say you need me. <laughs> I, I can't shoot. I can't shoot. He started to shake, and I ran forward to grab his gun. Look out! Drop it! Drop it! It's all right. I've got the gun. I can't. Is he hurt? Not to what he will be. Get up, funny man. No. Don't be too hard on him. He didn't realize. No, no, I... I guess maybe he didn't. It's funny, isn't it? You never really know what's going on in some of the best combed heads. Well, that's the way it goes. A little later than usual this morning. The day shift has already moved in and let the night crew wander off to their own private little beds. Well, at least I got to see the sun come up. And here I sit, still trying to make it all add up. But no matter how I figure it, the only answer I get is... You never know about people. <laughs> but bless them, maybe that's why we love them. See that man walking towards you with a smile on his face? What's he smiling about? Or is it just so you won't notice how he's screaming inside? <laughs> Ooh, trouble with me is I haven't had my coffee yet. Copy, boy. Night Beat, a dramatic series stars Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone. Night Beat is edited by Larry Marcus and directed by Warren Lewis. Music by Frank Worth. The part of Fran was played by Joan Banks. Paul Duboff played Tommy. Others in the cast were Georgia Ellis, Ken Christie, and Carol Richards. Frank Lovejoy will next be seen in Milton Sperling's production, Rock Bottom, released by Warner Brothers. Throughout the week, NBC brings you the best adventure mystery dramas on the air. You'll hear action-packed, fast-moving plots to hold your interest right up to the smashing climax on such thrilling programs as Big Town, Mr. District Attorney, The Big Story, and Dragnet every week on most of these NBC stations. On Dragnet, you'll hear documented cases from the Los Angeles police files. The big story brings you true tales from the front pages of America's newspapers. Mr. District Attorney, the champion of the people, takes you through an exciting episode in the conviction of a criminal. And tomorrow night on Big Town, you'll hear crusading editor Steve Wilson crack down on the forces of evil. For the best high-tension dramas, hear NBC's great mystery and adventure programs. Listen next week at this same time and every week as Randy Stone searches through the city for the strange stories waiting for him in the darkness. The stories that come out of the shadows to find their way into Night Beat.
Now, stay tuned for Brian Donlevy as a soldier of fortune on Dangerous Assignment on NBC. That's Nightbeat, February 27th, 1950, The Girl in the Park, Frank Lovejoy. And in that cast, Joan Banks, that was his real-life wife, Joan Banks. They worked together a lot on radio. Also, Paul Dubov, Ken Christie, Georgia Ellis, who we heard earlier as Kitty Russell on Gunsmoke. Uh, Carol uh, Richards in that episode as well. It's heard on NBC. Hope you enjoyed Nightbeat. Let's take a quick break. Then it's more on the WGN Radio Theater. All right. You know what, Lisa? What, Carl? In our next hour, we're going to play Murder at Midnight. And you know you what? To, you have to say it right. Well, Murder at Midnight. That's better. Okay. And you know what time it's going to be? It's going to be midnight. It's going to be See, in the midnight we, hour. We timed that pretty carefully. Pretty, pretty. I, I know what I'm doing around here. Pretty. Trying to Speaking make things of pretty, happen. Pretty, pretty, pretty. I'm watching Curb I Your Enthusiasm. Pretty. So am I. Over again because so, I loved it so much so the am first I. time I watched We're it. We're kind of doing this in tandem. I actually texted Carl the other night and said, I'm on this season, that episode. You have to watch it. Sir, Season it's one. ridiculously funny. Yeah. I, I don't know if there's a funnier show on television than Curb Your Enthusiasm. You know, I hadn't watched it from the beginning to end. It was just spotty. So I'm really enjoying the continuity of starting it from the beginning. I've wa- I watched uh, So it's 10 seasons right now. Right. So there's, I think, four or five episodes in season 10. But I can't wait for, you know, they, they keep releasing them once a week. I can't wait. So I went back, started watching it from season one. Yeah, that's oh, what I'm doing. So hilarious. It's a great, it's a great It show. really, really is. All right, next hour, Murder at Midnight. After that, The Great Gildersleeve. And it's a really early episode of The Great Gildersleeve. Yeah. 1942, Hal Perry stars in that episode, uh, sponsored by Kraft, the, uh, the company that you worked for for I a while. I sure did. She was an uh, advertising executive for Kraft. I sure was. Wow. I'm impressed. Lisa. <laughs> it used to be fancy. And then after that, the Hall of Fantasy, good mystery. So, uh, yeah, so we have, a, we have a Murder at Midnight episode coming your way. It's good. It's going to be really good. It's a sci-fi story. You won't want to miss that. If we're going to play it here, it's going to be good. You know it. All right, stick around. Was wrapped up in clover. The night I looked at you. 
What a voice, huh? Was, that's the, that's a singer, I'll tell you. Etta James. It's beautiful. At last. It's a beautiful song. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. I like it. I like it's it. Kind of a dance song. Can't you just picture some romantic it's dancing? I cannot do. I cannot do, like, the holding the partner, holding the girl, and dancing. I you can't, can't do, do that? No. Why not? I mean, I could... You could hold or dance? <laughs> I could dance, like... In my space, and then she dances in her space. No, we're I talking to your little Etta James dance. I know, but I, I, yeah. No, I can I slow dance. You know where you're just holding and you're just rocking back and forth. I can do that. That's what you do when you're 13. But, well, <laughs> I can do that. But as far as like turning the girl and the uh, dipping and all that, yeah, can't do it. Right. I just cannot all do right, it. So maybe you're maybe not a romantic take, at heart. I wonder if I should take lessons. Like yeah, at. Uh, Fred Astaire oh, dance. Yeah, that would be fun. Fred Astaire dance. First, you have to find the girl who's willing to go with you, though. That's the toughest part. That's tough. That is the toughest part oh, right no. there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then I, 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 could, then I can sing, at last, yeah, no. I found my one that will dance with me. Yeah. You, well, you know? stick to the dancing. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, this is hour three of the WGN Radio Theater. Uh, in this hour... We will be tuning in to Murder at Midnight, good mystery from 1946, a sci-fi story called The Secret of XR3. Mm, wonder what that's all about, Very Lisa. Mysterious. That'll be good. And uh, then in our next hour, Gildersleeve, the great Gildersleeve, good comedy, and then the Hall of Fantasy. So we have a lot more coming your way, and uh, really appreciate you joining us, uh, folks out there. In Radio Land, tuning in to us every Saturday night from 10 p.m. till 3 o'clock in the morning, playing all your favorite classic radio shows. We do have a text in line, 312-981-7200. 312-981-7200. We absolutely love getting your texts. Yes, I am reading all the texts, yeah. and I really do appreciate the yeah. uh, the comments. When we come back from the news, uh, not news, when we come back from the commercial break, we will play our segment just the facts from 1946. All your facts will be from 46, and then it's Murder at Midnight. Stick around. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Before we play our Murder at Midnight episode from 1946, we have Just the Facts, sponsored by Cat's Pride. And if I could think of one thing that sums up 1946, it would be this. Look, Daddy, teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. That doesn't that just bring a That's smile to your face? That's right. 1946, so It's a Wonderful Life. Wow. 1946 Christmas film produced and directed by Frank Capra. And mm-hmm. the film stars James Stewart as George Bailey. What a wonderful film. And, of course, the interesting... What a wonderful life. What a wonderful film in life. So despite performing poorly... Yeah. At the box office. It had some stiff competition at the time yeah. that it was released. Uh, but, of course, the film became a classic. And the change in reception was helped in part due to there was a clerical error. And the film somehow was put into public domain prior to right. when it was supposed to be. And so, of course, with that, it was allowed to be shown freely without you know licensing or royalty fees, that kind of thing. So That got reversed, though. 
It's no longer in the public domain. Is that right? Yeah. It, there was some kind of clerical error. Right. But it is no longer mm. a public domain film. All right. Well, be careful. That's why it. you don't see it as much as you used to. I have it on DVD. <laughs> <laughs> so, in 1946, 7-11 changed its name from Totem. Did you know that? Nope. So it was it was started out as T O T E and then a, like apostrophe M. So the company's first outlets were named Totem Stores because customers toted away their purchases. <laughs> some stores even featured some real Alaskan totem poles in front of the store. Did you know that? <laughs> no. So in 1946, their names were changed to reflect the new hours. Became 7-Eleven? Became 7-Eleven. Really? They, were started, they opened at 7 a.m. and closed at 11 p.m. See, I never knew that. Yeah, well, now you know why it's called that, although I don't believe that that's necessarily the hours <laughs> that they hold. The only problem is I have so much old-time radio facts in my head. That Everything that, like, else I'll leave here out. and I don't remember. I won't remember what you just said about that. Totem. Yeah. 7-Eleven. What? What? What's your name? Did you say something? Where are you? I can't hear you. And uh, Tom and Jerry's episode where Tom performed Liszt's Hungarian Rhapsody number no. 2. Franz Liszt. Yes, won the Oscar for Best Animated Short Film. This was in 1946. I think I remember this. Yeah, I do too. I watched it again the other day just because I know we were talking about it. This is the Cat Concerto, produced by Fred Quimby and directed by William Hanna and Joseph Barbera. Sure. And in 1994, it was voted number 42 of the 50 greatest cartoons of all time by members of the animation field. Wow. Right? Man. Right? 1946. You have all this at the top of your head, all these facts? Well, I have a few notes to help me out. Well, you, you know. do have two brains. But, you know, I got half of it in one brain, the other half in the other brain, and I'm smushing it all into yours. Smush it. I'm trying. All right. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Carl. 312-981-7200. That's our text in line. We love getting texts from you. Uh, all right. Time for Murder at Midnight. Want to know a little bit about it? I do. Okay. Came to radio in 1946. Lasted till 1950. Pretty good run. Um, it featured macabre tales of murder, science fiction, and suspense, often with a supernatural flair. And it was produced in New York. You know, a lot of the... I mean, there were some radio shows done here in Chicago. Primarily, they were done in Los Angeles. But there were quite a bit in New York. Like, um, you know, Boston Blackie was out of New York. Nick Carter, Master Detective. The Shadow... Grand Central Station. This was another one, Murder at Midnight. It was written by Robert A. Arthur and Joseph Ruskell and directed by Anton M. Leader. The host was Raymond Morgan. Now, the guy you're going to hear in the beginning of this, folks, he was a former Long Island minister. So, <laughs> so the Long professions I- a little yeah, bit Yeah, and I, somebody probably said to him, you know, I'm doing this radio show. You have a great voice. Would you like to be the um, the host of it or whatever? And he left the cloth. He left the cloth for the excitement of radio. Was it exciting? Yeah. I mean, he was <laughs> like, he, he did other stuff too, but this was the show he he did. Uh, you know, he was the host of it. He's He is good. You'll hear him in the oh, beginning of this program. Oh, he's got a great voice. Program. Yeah, this was a show called Markham. And I'm sorry, no, and I take it this back. This the, is called The, the Secret right. of XR3. It's a sci-fi uh, drama. September 30th, 1946. This is uninterrupted now. Here is Murder at Midnight. 
at midnight. You fool! You idiot! I'll fix you! I'll take you back there and... A razor! No! Don't! I, I told you not to touch me. Played our last performance together. Midnight, the witching hour when the night is darkest, our fears the strongest, our strength at its lowest ebb. Midnight, when the graves gape open and death strikes. How? You'll learn the answer in just a minute in. The Secret of XR3. Tales of Mystery and Terror by Radio's Masters of the Macabre. Our story by Max Ehrlich is The Secret of XR3. The Death House. A man sits in a tiny cell, his head bowed, waiting for the moment when he will pass from light to eternal shadow. The clock ticks on, but the time is not yet, not quite yet. Then footsteps sound in the corridor. The door opens. It's almost time, my son. Yes, Father. I know. Is there anything I can do? No. Still, I'm glad you've come. Father, uh, look at me. Look at me closely. Yes? I frighten you, don't I? I terrify you. No. No, my son. Nothing frightens me except the evil in men's hearts. Am I evil? I... I don't know, my son. Father, I... uh, Sit down. Let me tell you my story, and then when I've finished, perhaps you can tell me. They call me Gorgo. All my life I've been a little man, only three feet high. Perfectly normal in every way, you see, except for my height. Perhaps you saw me down at the Century Theater not so long ago, the vaudeville team of Petrov and Gorgo, acrobats supreme. Petrov was a huge, ape-like man who tossed me through the air like a rubber ball. And the audience liked the act. The contrast between the big, big Petrov and the little, little Gorgo intrigued and amused them. And on the stage, I, I laughed and smiled and went through my tricks like a happy little fellow. But in the dressing room... It was different. I did not like your performance tonight, Gorgo. But, but uh, what, what was wrong with the Petrov? You were slow. You landed too heavily. You did not smile enough. But, but they liked us, Petrov. You heard them. We got three curtain calls. We should have gotten five. Petrov, I, I did my best. My very best. Believe me. Your I... best was not good enough, little one. <laughs> Perhaps you will do better tomorrow. If I lock you in your room tonight... Without supper. 
That was Vladimir Petrov, a gorilla of a man and master of my body and soul. How I hated him. How many times I, I wept in the silence of my room. All my life I had walked in the shadows of bigger people. See, all my life I had looked up instead of straight ahead, endured the stares of the curious and sensed the pity that was in their hearts. And that was why I used to wait in the alley near the stage door between performances because it was dark there. I loved the dark. It protected me and hid me from those who stared and mocked. One night... I beg your pardon, you were Gorgo? Yes? Uh, my name is Dr. Mead. I saw your performance earlier tonight. I was just coming in to see you. Yes? What about? Well, I happen to be an expert in glandular work particularly in the function of the pituitary or growth gland. I think the results of my recent experiments will interest you. I, uh, I don't understand, Dr. Main. Did you ever hear of XR3? XR3? No. Well, it's an extract, a uh, synthetic, I discovered about two years ago. In my experiments to date, whenever I injected it into stunted or dwarfed animals, they grew. They Grew? Yes. You, you mean to normal size? Well, by using controlled doses, yes. You mean, if you could do this with with animals, then then you could. I don't know, Gorgo. I think the time has come to try. Except for your size, you were perfectly formed. Just what I've been looking for. I came to ask you if you'd volunteer. Yes, yes. You understand? I can't guarantee a thing. I understand, and and that doesn't matter. I. Dr. Mead, you don't know what it means, even the chance, a chance to grow to normal size. Why, uh, I... One thing, though, I must have your written permission. My permission? Yes, yes, Dr. Mead, I'll give it to you gladly. I'll do anything, anything. You speak a little hastily, do you uh, not, Gorgo? Petrov. Yes, little one. I'm sorry, Dr. Mead. I'm afraid you will have to find someone else for your experiments. Someone else. My little friend cannot act as your guinea pig without my consent. You see, I am Gorgo's legal guardian. And I have the papers to prove it. No, Petrov, no! No, you've got to give me this chance! Violence, little fool! As I said, I am sorry, Doctor, but... But, my dear sir, if I can make Gorgo grow to normal size... If you did, what would become of our act? It would be worthless. The people come to see big Petrov and little Gorgo. Do you mean to say, Mr. Petrov, that you would let your vaudeville act stand in the way? Yes. I spent years building the team of Petrov and Gorgo. You think I am going to let you ruin my investment now? Petrov, please, please, please let him do it. You've got Shut to. Shut up, you little fool, and get inside. Petrov! As for you, doctor, I wouldn't advise you to come around here again. This was a blow I could not stand. Dr. Mead had opened a prison door for me and Petrov had slammed it shut again. I resolved then that come what may, I would have my chance. The very idea of the XR3, of becoming a man like other men, made me drunk and gave me daring. One morning, while Petrov was away, I paid a visit to Dr. Mead at his office and begged him to try the experiment without Petrov's permission. I'm sorry, Gorgo, but I cannot. The experiment would be very delicate if anything should happen without your guardian's legal permission. No, I'll run the risk, Dr. Mead. I'll be glad to. I'm sorry, but it can't be done. 
I see. Dr. Mead? Yes. Just what does this XR3 look like? Well, I've made it up in capsule form. Here, I will bottle the capsules in my desk drawer. As you see, they're green in color. So those are the magic capsules. Thank you for letting me see them, Doctor. Thank you very much. Late that night, I slipped out of my hotel room and down the fire escape. Keeping in the shadows, I went to Dr. Mead's office and climbed through the grilled bars in the window. It was easy for a man of my size. And when I left, I had the bottle of XR3 capsules in my pocket. Well, that was Saturday night. I took one capsule and then another. They made me ill, lightheaded. And then I fell into a deep sleep. And then a knock on the door wakened me. Uh, uh... Who is it? Petro. Why are you sleeping so late? Uh, uh, I don't feel well. Oh, my little one does not feel well. Let it be. Please, uh, uh, Petrov, I want to sleep. Very well. Today is Sunday and there is no performance. But tomorrow, my little Gorgo, you had better be in the best of health, understand? Otherwise, I'll see that you really become sick. After he left, I fell into the deep sleep again. And then something woke me. My muscles ached as though I had been stretched on a rack. It was daylight again. It was Monday. My pajamas seemed uncomfortably tight, and I looked down, and the sleeves only reached my elbows. I stared, and my heart stopped beating. Then I remembered the XR3. Like a drunken man, I staggered over to the mirror, looked... Yes! I had grown. I had grown. My pajamas were stretched to bursting. I was growing. I was at least five feet tall. Five feet tall! It was almost time for the performance now. Petrov would be coming for me any minute. And I didn't want him to see me. Not yet. So I piled furniture against the door. And waited. All right, Gorgo. Time to go to the theater. I, uh... I can't go, Petrov. Not tonight. I'm still sick. What? You little swine, do you think I'm going to postpone a performance because you're sick? Open the door. No. Petrov, no. Don't come in. Don't come in. You little fool. I'll break every bone in your body. I had the key, and I heard it turning in the lock. The furniture against the door would only hold for a minute. And I ran to my valise, took out a straight razor, and then, like a frightened animal, I waited. Barricade the door, will you? I assure you, what it means to Now, my little... Gorgo. In the name of heaven, what... Yes, Petrov. I got it. I stole the XR-3, and I took it. Now, you see... You idiot... Do you realize what you've done? You've ruined the act. You've ruined it. Do you hear? Yes, but I'm a man now. I'm a man, not a dwarf. They won't stare at me now. They won't... No? That's what you think. If that doctor could make you grow, he can make you small again. <laughs> Smaller than ever. No, Petrov, no! Yes, Gorgo. Huh? 
You've grown, but not so much that I can't handle you. We're going to see him right now. Petrov, no, let, let me alone, for heaven's sake. Don't struggle, you. Eraser, no, don't. I told you to leave me alone. I told you. And now it's all over. We've played our last performance together. A doomed man sitting in the death house pauses in his story, recalling the first time the clock struck 12 for murder at midnight. Continuing his story to the priest in the death house. I stayed in my hotel room another day and took two more XR3 capsules. And when I looked into the mirror that night, I was over six feet tall. That was enough. That was all I wanted. Now I would leave the hotel. They'd never know who killed Petrov. They'd be looking for Gorgo, a three-foot midget. Never suspect me. Yes, I was in the clear. I stripped Petrov, put on his clothes. They were a little tight, but they did well enough. Then I went through the lobby and into the night. The mere experience of walking was exciting, exhilarating, as though I were walking on a high fence. And nobody looked at me twice. The staring eyes were gone. I was normal, normal. First, I had to find a place to live. I passed by a boarding house with a sign, Room to Let. I rang the bell. Yeah, what is it? Oh, hello. Hello. I, uh, my name is Baker, John Baker. I, uh, saw your sign about a room. Hmm. Yeah. Would you like to see it, big boy? If you don't mind. I don't mind a bit. Come in. Come in. <laughs> it's a lovely room. We got a nice class of people. <laughs> I'm sure you'll like it. I'm sure I will. Uh, but uh, first, Miss... Um... Devlin. Rhoda Devlin. Yeah. I, uh, well, uh, Miss Devlin, I just wanted to say I've been living in hotels all my life, and I can't give you any references. Forget it. My mother owns the place, and... Well, we're not exactly formal. Besides, you look good to me. I do? Yeah. I... Well, I always did go for big men. Big? Yeah. Oh. Mm. And I, uh... I've always liked pretty girls. <laughs> this was a dream come true. I was a normal man, and a normal girl was attracted to me. She was blonde and blue-eyed, and her head came up to my shoulder. A week passed. A week that was beyond my wildest dreams. I took Rhoda out, and we went everywhere. I fell in love with her. 
madly in love. She was so small, so delicate. I, I, I wanted to protect her always. She had opened up a new and magic world to me, a world of light and love and laughter. And then, one night it happened. I was taking Rhoda home from the movies, and we were passing a billiard parlor, and there were several idlers in front of the place. They began saying things. Hey, look at the giant. Yeah. How's the weather up there, big boy? Hey, Jerry, what do you got there, Pike's <laughs> You wait here, Rhoda. I'll shut their mouths for them. All right. I crack the skull of the next man who opens his mouth. Please, Johnny, don't bother with them. Yeah, but they're saying... I, I know, but don't mind them. Let's keep walking. No, I will Please. I... All right. Well, what do you know, the big baboon? Trying to throw his weight around. <laughs> I wanted to smash their jeering faces, knock them down. But Rhoda and I walked on to her mother's boarding house. And she was strangely silent as we entered the dimly lit foyer. She hadn't said a single word since we had passed that billiard parlor. And I was vaguely disturbed. I took her in my arms, but she pushed me away. No, please don't. What's the matter, I, baby? I, I, Is it what those men at the billiard parlor said? I don't know. It seems to me you're growing bigger right before my eyes. Growing bigger? Yeah. Yeah. I thought at first I was seeing things, but now I know it's true. I know it's crazy. It's crazy, but when we first met, the top of my head reached your shoulders. And now, now... Yeah? What about now? Now it doesn't reach your shoulders anymore. You've grown bigger. Now, Rhoda, you don't know what you're saying. This is your imagination. No, no, it's true. We'd better not see each other anymore. I'm afraid of you, John. You're too big now. Good night. No, Rhoda, listen. Oh, don't no, touch Rhoda, me. please. Oh, let go of my arm. No, not until you hear what I have to say. Rhoda, I love you. Do you hear? I love you, and I'm not going to let you just toss me aside. Let me go, no. you big love. Let me go. Oh, stop that. No, stop that screaming. You want to waste the whole let street me up. Go. Stop it. Stop it. body sagged in my arms. I'd forgotten my own strength. And in my fury, I'd strangled her. Like a man in a dream, I lowered her body gently to the floor and then turned to look at my reflection in the full-length mirror in the foyer. Yes! Yes, it was true. The pitiless mirror reflected a giant. I'd grown at least six inches. The XR3 had continued its work, was making me grow even now. Now I was a freak again. They stare at me again and pity me. The beautiful, normal world I had so briefly enjoyed came crashing down over my ears. I ran out of the house like a wild man and into the street. Dr. Mead. Yes, I had to see him. 
once I ran to his office, avoiding the well-lit streets, and the light was on, and I prayed that he was in. I knocked on the door. Yes, what? Good Lord. Hello, Dr. Mead. You remember me? Why? No, I can't say that I do. Look up into my face, Doctor. The features are the same you looked down upon not so long ago. Go, go, the midget. No, Dr. Mead. It's Gorgo the giant now. So it was you who stole the bottle of XR3 capsules from my desk? Yes, yes, yes. And this is the result? This and Petrov's murder? He deserved to die. It does not alter the fact that it still was murder. Dr. Maid! I'm not here to argue law with you. I want you to save me. You've got to stop this growing process. But how? What can I do? An antidote. You must have an antidote. I'm sorry, but I haven't. There just isn't any. What? No antidote? Oh, you're lying. I assure you, I'm telling the truth, Gorgo. I was interested in making things grow, not making them smaller. Yeah. Then I'm lost. There's no way out. I'm sorry. All my life, I was a little man. I wanted to know what it was... what it was like to be a big man. Now I am big. Too big. <laughs> Isn't that amusing, Doctor? <laughs> too little and then too big. <laughs> like the swing of a pendulum. <laughs> I wish I were little again. As I knew what to expect then. <laughs> I was used to that. Now they'll stare at me again. They'll laugh and jeer at me. Gorgo the giant. <laughs> Gorgo the giant. <laughs> I think we'd better call the police, Gorgo. Well, Father, that's... that's my story. See, that's why I'm here in the death house. Now, tell me, am I evil? No, my son. You have been unfortunate, but not evil. You have sinned, yes. But you have been sinned against, too. They're coming for you, Gorgo. I hear. And I'm glad. Glad? Yes. Glad. I don't mind dying now. This world, Father, what has it ever meant to me? But there, in the next world, there no man will be strange and all will be equal. Perhaps there I will find peace. With firm and measured tread, the man who was first too small and then too big 
walks down the corridor. And the iron doors along the way rattle and clang like the chiming of the clock when it first struck 12 for murder at midnight. to be with us again when death walks through the darkness with giant strides and the clocks strike twelve for murder at midnight. The part of Gorgo was played by Carl Swenson. With music by Charles Paul, Murder at Midnight was directed by Anton M. Leder. Murder at Midnight, a broadcast from September 30th, 1946. Um, that was called The Secret of XR. That was called The Secret of XR3. Yeah, a good sci fi story. Um, yeah, what do you think of that? Did you like that? Yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah. Very exciting. A fellow Carl started yes, that. Yes, although he spells it with a K. Yeah, that's, so that's unacceptable. Right. Totally no, unacceptable. not right. Carl should be with a C. I know. Um, yeah, you know, did you hear that organ at the oh, end there? Oh, of course. The Hammond organ? Yeah, it sets the tone. You it know, sets the mood. The New York shows had the organ a lot, like Boston Blackie, Nick Carter, The Shadow, this particular episode. Saved money. You know, you have a whole orchestra. And the organ, it was fine, right? Well, it's fine for this type of, you know, macabre type feel. Sure. It had the right feel. It worked for the detective shows, too. And here's another good thing with having just an organ. So, let you know, these were were broadcast live, right? Yeah. So you would time it out to be 30 minutes, but if you went a little short or a little long... You just stretch that organ. <laughs> you know, the organist, would, the director would be like, play keep more, going. keep going, keep going. Yeah, kind of like we get do to the radio. Top. <laughs> <laughs> so made it a lot, uh, made it easier, yeah. you know, with the organ. I like the organ. All right, let's take a quick break, and then it's uh, much more coming your way here on the WGN Radio Theater. When I was just a little girl my mother, what will I be? Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? 
what she said to me. What will be, will be When I grew up and fell in love I asked my sweetheart what lies ahead Will we have rainbows day after day Here's what my sweetheart said Que sera, sera Everybody loves Doris Day. I I love that song. And everybody loved her. Yeah. She just passed away last uh, year. She was 97 when she passed away in May. Yeah, 2019. I mean, she was beautiful. She's a beautiful voice. Remember those, like, Pillow Talk, the movie with with, uh, Rock Hudson? Remember that? That was a hysterical movie. Oh, that was one of the funniest movies. They teamed a lot. They were they yeah. were good buddies, Rock Hudson and her. And um, it's a great she show. had her own radio show for a while. And she was an activist television too, show. Wasn't she very active. She, but you know, it's weird because like the last forty years or so, what was she doing? I mean, I didn't see. I mean, she was hugely uh, popular in the forties yeah. and and in the fifties. And then she had her television show for a while, but I don't I don't remember hearing about anything that she was doing the last thirty plus years. Yeah, I don't know. Really she, not she, acting or anything. She was just enjoying retirement, she I guess. She did win a Cecil B. DeMille Lifetime Achievement Award mm-hmm. not too long ago. I don't remember yeah. when it was. Well, yeah, great talent right there. Doris Day. Doris Day. Ninety seven, huh? Mm-hmm. Well, she uh, had a great career. Yeah. So we're going on a cruise, folks. Yep. We're leaving. Uh, Who is we, by the way? Um, you're going <laughs> with your husband. Yes. And I'm going with myself. Well, you may. That I know Who of. knows what will Who happen knows? by August 1st. Things change quickly with <laughs> August you. August 1st, 2020. We are set say, sail. We will be setting sail for Bermuda yes. out of New York. Right. And it is seven nights. It's going to be a blast. It's a classic radio cruise. We will be, uh, I, I hear that the beaches are pink sand. Pink sand. Something yeah, in happened. Bermuda. I don't wow. know exactly why. Never but, seen um, that before. No, this is Oceana Cruise Line, yeah, which is terrific. very uh, luxurious, known for its food and entertainment. And uh, the name of the ship is called Insignia. It's been reimagined, and it's supposed to be gorgeous. And you know what I, you know what I remember reading? There's like one servant, one person that serves yes. 1.4 people or something like that. I think it's like, like one for every six passengers. No, it's it not. Four? It's No, it's like one for every one and a half passengers. Really? Oh, yeah. It's like mega well, service. This is a smaller ship, so it's a yeah. little more intimate. You are and, getting uh, like, you will it's be. It's going to be a really special trip. I wonder if I'll have my own person that whole time. Well, is it going to be a woman? One, 
<laughs> Can I just pick one person? Okay, just follow me around the ship all just the time. Stay with me. Do, do you person. get to choose her yourself? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to Bermuda. It's a classic radio cruise, and um, we're not only going to have fun and explore Bermuda, we're going to have fun on the ship, and we're going to really learn some more about classic radio. We're going to have reenactments and trivia contests and prizes, and we're really going to take the time to get to know our listeners and spend the time relaxing and enjoying and sightseeing and all those things with our listeners. I know some of the categories are full. There are only so many more bookings left. We hope that you'll check it out. Um, Do it now. Yeah, definitely. Um, It's at sale August 1st. Give our our travel agency a call, Keen Luxury Travel. Their phone number is 800-856-1155. They are the experts. They will answer all your questions and make sure that this is a great trip for you. What's the number again? 800-856-1155. 55. Right. Or you can go to our website, WGNRadioTheater.com. There is a banner. You can click that. All uh, kinds of information there. In our next hour, Hal Perry, in a very early episode of The Great Gildersleeve from 1942. Moon river, wider than a mile. I'm You know, you may not know this, Lisa. I don't think I ever told you this. I worked with Andy Williams. No, I didn't yeah. know that. Yes. I actually uh, worked with him, ventured with him on a release of Christmas classic radio shows. They were all selected by Andy Williams. Hmm. And if his picture was on the cover oh. of it and all that. Yeah. It was a big box set. Like the 60 greatest Christmas shows of all time selected by Andy Williams. Oh, it was a very good seller. That is. I bet it yeah. was. And he wrote the foreword to the little booklet that was in the collection and everything like that. Well, yeah. I hope everyone's loving this music. And he was living, oh gosh, where where was he again? I think in Nashville. I think he was actually living in Nashville at the time, working, you know, doing his show. Um, yeah. No, I think he was... Where's Dolly Land? Where's that at? You know? I'm trying to think where Dolly um, Land is. Not in Nashville. I think he was doing... Like Dollywood? Yeah, Dollywood. Yeah. I believe he was doing a show the, with that whole organization, Dollywood. Yeah, it's in Tennessee. Yeah. Some, but I not thought it was in Nashville. Nashville. I thought it was maybe Nashville, but could But be it wrong. is Tennessee, the yeah. theme park. Really nice guy. Um, he was really into it. I mean, he remembered all these classic radio shows, of course. Sure. And so when I approached him on it, he was like, yeah, I'd love to do it. And I, so I sent him a list of many, many more than 60 shows, and he and he pared it down. And, and then that's what we released, oh, the nice. 60 that he picked. Yeah, yeah. that's nice. Uh, all right, good old Andy Williams, Moon River. That was one of his 
Like big hits. Oh, for sure. He had a lot of hits, but that was a big one. All right. In this hour, The Great Gildersleeve from 1942. Hal Perry stars in an early episode from the series. Of course, Gildersleeve was a regular character on Fibber McGee and Molly. Fibber McGee and Molly started in the 30s. And Hal Perry was an actor on that series, and he played Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve, who was Fibber's kind of... Uh, arch rival you know they would always argue they were next door neighbors and the character became so popular gildersleeve that it made us it spun off it was radio's first spinoff into its own series called the great gildersleeve so we have an episode very early episode in that series and that's coming your way right after these words Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. We have an early episode of The Great Gildersleeve coming up from 1942. So our Just the Facts segment, sponsored by Cat's Pride, is about 1942. President-to-be Gerald Ford worked as a male model in his late 20s and was featured on the cover of Cosmopolitan in 1942, of course, wearing his Navy uniform. Wow, I had no idea. Have you seen that photo? No. I didn't know, but I looked at the photo. It's pretty dapper. He served as the 38th President of the United States, August 74 to January 77. If you want to see a good picture of him, check out Cosmopolitan 1942. (laughs) 1942, yeah. Yeah. He was on the cover of Cosmo? Cover. Wow. Yes. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I don't think he was knew he was going to be president at that time. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, beginning in May of 42 and ending in August of 45, a nationwide speed limit of how many miles per hour was instated? And this was instated everywhere from big city streets to rural highways. I'll say 45. Well, that would have been great. It was 35 miles an hour. They called it the victory speed limit. And you know why it was instated? <sighs> no. Well, it was in order to reduce gasoline and rubber consumption. Oh, right. Yeah. So that so, we could win the war. It was the push well, there. Yeah. yeah. And the slower people drove, the mm-hmm. less gas and rubber they would Interesting. need. So they called it the victory speed to make him kind of more accepting of wow. this lower speed limit. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, it does. And in 1942, the popular Walt Disney film Bambi premiered. That was August 21st. The film was Disney's fifth. I don't think ad- I've ever seen it. You've never seen Bambi? I don't think Bambi? so. I'm not into that kind. Well, hang on. It was it was um, Disney's fifth animated feature film and was nominated for three Academy Awards, including Best Original Song for the song "Love Is a Song." See, I don't think I've ever heard this. Well, I didn't know this song, but this was from 1942. I'm not a. Well, this song has been re-released several times. Yeah. And there's going to be a live-action redo. Have you seen Bambi? Of course. 
I have children. <laughs> I have children, <laughs> I know. too. I'm so, sure they all saw it. But, but I, Disney's developing a, a live-action redo of its 42 classic, and it's going to use the same um, computer animation that we saw for The Lion King and for mm-hmm. The Jungle Book. All so right. you have a chance to redeem yourself. Yeah, I'll watch it when it comes you can, out I'll again. let you know. Sure, I will. I'll let you know <laughs> when you can sit down sure with your will, children Lisa. and watch some Bambi. Yeah, I'll, I'll gather my... It's Curb Your Enthusiasm or Bambi. You choose. Curb. <laughs> I'm with you. Three one two nine eight one seven two hundred. We've been getting a lot of texts tonight. Thanks, everyone. We love hearing from you. Um, one person just said, "Great story about Andy Williams." Good night. I'm going to bed. Pretty much. Yep. Yeah. Wonderful story so, and good night. <laughs> and thank you for letting us all know specifically where Dollywood is. It's in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Oh, okay. It's in Tennessee, though. I said it's Nashville, true. but. Uh, it's not Nashville. You were very close. Somewhere in Tennessee. Yeah. Um, Have you ever been to Tennessee? Many, 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 many times. In fact, I was just there. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You were. Um, The Great Gildersleeve. Oh, I love The Great Gildersleeve. My brother hates this show. It's that's sad because he just doesn't like the. Yeah, that it can you know? it can get a little can grating. Can grow on you. It could be grating, or you can kind of laugh with it. I guess it's just they should, how you know you what they should it. do. They should create an alarm, like a alarm clock, with that. With that, you know, that'll get you out of bed, like, right? You'd be like, what? You'd throw it through the window. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this was an NBC comedy series. Came to radio in 1941. Lasted all the way to 1958. That is a long run for radio. Series was built around Throck Morton P. Gildersleeve, regular character from Fibber McGee and Molly. And Harold Perry originated the character on Fibber McGee and Molly in 1939. So from 39 to 41, he was uh, Fibber's next door neighbor. And, you know, they would, he was sort of the main antagonist to Fibber on the show. He was uh, his next door neighbor. Gildersleeve grew so popular that Kraft Foods said, hey, you know what? We might have uh, you know, a tiger by the tail here. Let's take this character, spin it out into its own radio series. And that's exactly what they did. They called it the Great Gildersleeve. And on this show, Gildy was an eligible bachelor raising his orphan niece, Marjorie, nephew Leroy. And they had a housekeeper, too, named Birdie. Gildersleeve was the town's water commissioner. And over the years, he dated a bevy of women. He was uh, quite quite, the, ladies quite the ladies' man, that uh, Gildersleeve. His nephew, Leroy, was played for the entire run by Walter Tetley. And even as an adult, Tetley had the voice of a preteen boy. Um, we're not exactly sure why that happened. There are some theories. I won't go into it right now on the on the uh, radio. But on television, you probably remember Walter Tetley was the voice of Sherman in the Mr. Peabody cartoons. Remember that? I sure they, do. They would kind of go back in time. Yeah. Uh, in 1950, Willard Waterman replaced Harold Perry as Gildersleeve on radio, and then Willard Waterman continued into television with that character. So... That's a little background on this series. We're going to go back now to January 4th, 1942. On this show, Gildersleeve bets Judge Hooker $100, a lot of money back in 1942, that he can lose 10 pounds by going on a diet. That's what I want to do. I want to lose. I want to lose about twenty pounds. We can all do that. So let's tune this in uninterrupted. Here is the great Gildersleeve. <laughs> Thank you.
Sweet at this time from Hollywood, California, Kraft presents Harold Perry as the Great Gildersleeve, written by Leonard L. Levinson. We'll hear from the Great Gildersleeve in just a moment. But first, times like these call for real thrift. Yes, we must save money to buy defense bonds, to help in any way we can. But we must be careful to economize wisely, especially when we economize on food, because the health and well-being that comes from nourishing food are vitally important, too. That's why delicious parquet margarine, the modern margarine made by Kraft, is a good thing to know about these days. First, parquet is so good-tasting, your family will want to spread it thick on toast, hot rolls, and bread. And parquet margarine is an economical source of food values important to a balanced diet. Parquet is a wholesome, nourishing food, one of the best sources of food energy there is. What's more, serving your family parquet margarine is a dependable way to give them vitamin A, because every pound of parquet contains 9,000 units of this important vitamin. So why not start serving parquet margarine tomorrow? It's perfectly delicious for table use and for baking and pan frying, too. Yes, you can economize wisely without sacrificing nourishment or flavor if you use parquet, spelled P-A-R-K-A-Y. And now let's visit our friend, the great Gildersleeve. Here you are, Mr. Gildersleeve. I cut you an extra large portion of roast on account of you must be extra hungry. Well, why should I be extra hungry, uh, Bertie? Because you didn't touch your soup or your salad. No use. You saving up your appetite for the serious vittles, the meat and the potatoes. (laughs) Yes, uh, serious, the meat and potatoes. (laughs) Well, to tell the truth, Bertie, I don't think I'll have any. Uh, You didn't fill up on hot dogs while you was out now, did you? Why, what a question, as if I would. Oh, you didn't, did you, Uncle Moore? Marjorie, do I look like a man who stuffed himself with a lot of sandwiches and soft drinks between meals? Well, Uncle Moore... Uh, Leroy, I was asking your sister Marjorie. (laughs) Well, I can tell soon enough. If you eat your dinner properly, then the suspicions I I am positive of now will prove to be completely erroneous to my total surprise and everlasting amazement. (laughs) Now, Bertie, you're a wonderful cook. You've got a right to be proud of your work, but... Did it ever occur to you that there might be some other reason why I'm not eating my dinner? Such as, for instance, what? Uh, well, it's, uh, it's like this. Uh, yes, I've got it. Funny how I almost forgot. <laughs> Funny how you just remembered. Uh, what is it, Mr. Gilsey? Well, I suppose I should have told you about this before, but I've gone on a diet. A diet? A diet, for heaven's sake. It was kind of sudden, wasn't it, Unc? Yes. No. It was one of my New Year resolutions. But this is the first you've mentioned it, Uncle Morton. New Year's was on Thursday. Oh, was it? Oh, yes, of course it was. <laughs> it always comes on Thursday, doesn't it? Oh, no, that's Thanksgiving. Yeah. Well, I've been thinking it over ever since I made this resolution, and I think I'll try it out for, uh, say, a day or so. Oh, you should try it out longer than that, Uncle Throckmorton. But suppose he gets hungry. Well, of course he'll get hungry. That's the purpose of a diet. Not this one. You see, the real reason... Uh, Leroy, remember the old Chinese saying, small boy who talk big seldom get invited to basketball games second time. standing here with this here plate of food in my hand, but is you on this diet or is you isn't? I is, Bertie. I mean, I am. I'm sorry. It's a delicious-looking dinner, but... Well, you better uh, take it away, Bertie. We must do all we can to help Uncle Mort keep his resolution. Yes, but I wish I knew more about this diet business ahead of time. 
It wouldn't have been necessary to practically ruin a perfectly lovely cow. <laughs> oh, I think it's just grand of you to go on this diet, Uncle. Huh? And I'm going to do everything I can to help you stay on it. Oh, well, isn't that nice of you? <laughs> now, if you can't eat, at least you can smoke. You smoke? By George, you're right. You haven't even started that box of cigars I got you for Christmas. Oh, yes, them. <laughs> Where are you going, Marjorie? Bring you those cigars. Oh, my goodness, Leroy. I received some horrible Christmas cigars in my day, but these are a new low. <laughs> It's the first time I've seen cigars made out of cigar coupons. Oh, gee, if you don't smoke them, she'll feel bad. If I do, I'll feel a lot worse. I'm telling you, Leroy, a single whiff from one of those punk perfectos... Nah, back already, my dear. Here they are, Uncle Maud. Uh? Oh, I just can't wait to see your eyes light up when you light up one of these cigars. It looks like you got a glow, Unc. Well, to tell the truth, Margie, my dear, I... Uh, I also made a New Year's resolution to curtail my smoking. Oh, well, in that case, you can cut these in two. Uh, what? That way they'll last twice as long. Uh, I, I better save them, Marjorie. I think I'll give up smoking altogether for the time being. That was a smart move, Uncle Mort. Yes. <laughs> well, in that case, I'll just hide the box so you won't be tempted to take any. Oh, you needn't do that, my dear. I feel sure that they're strong enough to keep me at a safe distance. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm strong enough to keep them at a safe distance. Uh, if saved by the bell. Oh, Bertie's busy in the kitchen. I'll get it. Yeah. Gee, Uncle, aren't you getting pretty deep with those New Year's resolutions? Well, Leroy, you talk as if I were insincere. Oh, are you? Young man, that's neither here nor there. Well, look who's here, Judge Hooker. Oh, that old Judge. buffalo. Yeah. See, I hope I haven't come butting in the middle of your dinner, Gildersleeve. Oh, no. In fact, Uncle Mort isn't having any dinner. You aren't, Gildy? What's the matter? Sick? No, I'm not sick. <laughs> going on a diet, Judge. Isn't that wonderful? I'd say it is. Why, do you realize that with Gildersleeve here on a diet, this country won't have to worry about a food shortage? (laughs) (laughs) Very funny. I'll bet you put on ladies' hats at parties, too. (laughs) And not only that, Unc's given up smoking. Oh, now, wait a minute. Don't you know, old man, that if you don't smoke, you're bound to eat more? And yes. if you go on a diet, you'll naturally smoke a lot? You just can't do both of them at once. Hey, I hadn't thought of that. Oh, the ordinary person might not be able to, but Uncle Mort is really a man of iron. Uh, who, me? Yes, you're just a little rusty, that's all. Ah, <laughs> oh, go on. Gildy couldn't keep a resolution like that any longer than Hitler can keep a promise. <laughs> is that so? Don't judge everybody by the way you judge yourself, Judge. Well, if I wanted to, I could stay on a vegetable diet and keep away from tobacco for, uh, for a whole week. Yes. And lose ten pounds, too. Gildy, it's a good thing for you I'm on the Superior Court bench. Otherwise, I'd make some money betting you you couldn't. Oh, hiding behind your legal gown, eh? Well, it's lucky for you you're not betting. Why? How much would you put up? Uh, any amount of money. Fifty dollars? A hundred dollars. Too bad you're afraid to bet, Judge. Who's afraid? I'll take you up. Yeah, but, but you can't do that. How would it look if anyone found out that a Superior Court judge was gambling? But this isn't gambling, Gildy. It's not? No, this is a sure thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you think, Judge. But here's what I, I'm going to take you to the cleaners. Then it's a bet, huh? Yes, sir. No meats, no sweets and cigars, and ten pounds off in a week. Is that right? Right. Shake. Shake. Well, this is going to be the easiest hundred dollars I've ever picked up. Don't you think so, Leroy? Don't you think so, Marjorie? Oh, my goodness, I should have gotten odds on this bet. (laughs) 
morning, Marjorie. Good morning, Bertie Lee Coggins. Better fix a great big breakfast for me. <laughs> What'd you just say, Mr. Gilsley? A uh, lovely day, isn't it? I've got an enormous appetite this morning. You better bring me three or four scrambled eggs and some bacon. Oh, no. I'm in more of a ham mood this morning. Whoa, damn, Mr. Gillsleeve. Haven't you forgotten something? Oh, yes, of course, some waffles. No, Uncle Mort. You've forgotten all about your diet. What? Oh, oh, yes. Well, I've changed my mind about that. But you can't, Unc. You bet Judge Hooker $100 you'd lose 10 pounds inside a week. Oh, yes, so I did. Well, I fixed a real non-fattening breakfast for you, Mr. Gillsleeve. The non-fattening you have? What is it? A nice big glass of hot water and lemon juice. <laughs> what a sour way to start the day. How did I ever get into this? But don't you remember, Uncle... Be quiet, Leroy. <laughs> Never mind breakfast, Bertie. I'm going to drive downtown and get to work. But I intend using the car this morning, Uncle Moore. You? What am I supposed to do, walk? Well, of course. The exercise is going to help you lose that ten pounds. It's exercise? But, but I can't walk all the way downtown, especially on an empty stomach. Oh, yes, you can, Mr. Gillsley. You just keep your coat buttoned and nobody will notice it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that walk down here sure made me hungry. Uh, oh, miss? Uh, miss? Do you wish for some breakfast? Yes, I want a lot of breakfast. I want a half a grapefruit, a baked apple, a breakfast steak, not too small, and some potatoes. Uh, what kind? Hash brown, french fried, or mashed? Yes. Yes, which? Yes, all three. <laughs> I want some cooked cereal, hot cakes, a pair of eggs, sunny side up, toast and coffee. You got it? Uh, yes, sir. On the number two breakfast? Yes, on the number two breakfast. Oh, I'm sorry, sir, but all that doesn't come down on the number two breakfast. Yeah. You could have it on the number six breakfast, except it comes cheap a la carte. Well, all right, let me have it any way I can get it, just so it's quick. And, miss, yes. uh, bring me a glass of hot water and lemon juice. Put it down right here in front of me so I can sneer at it. Yes, sir. Hmm, some people. Uh-huh. Well, uh, I hope she hurries. My stomach feels like an Arizona rain barrel in July. I'm telling you, for the last time, Irwin, not another dollar until... Hello. What are you doing here, Gildersleeve? What? Uh... Oh, hello, Judge Hooker. Well, I never expected to see you here. I'll bet you didn't. What are you doing here? Well, I uh, just dropped in for, uh, uh, let me see. Oh, yes, uh, for a glass of hot water and lemon juice. Oh, well. Gildersleeve, I want you to meet my brother-in-law, Irwin Pitch. Who? Irwin, this is Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve. The pleasure's all mine. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Well, uh, don't let me detain you. I'll see you soon, Judge. What are you so nervous about, Gildy, old pal? Uh, who, me? Oh, I'm not nervous. Not a bit, not a bit, not a bit. <laughs> uh, yes, you are. Otherwise, why are you putting salt on your finger? If what? Oh, I thought it was celery. <laughs> oh, you're a case, Gildy. Uh, Isn't he, Irwin? Yeah, he acts as if he's got a guilty conscience. <laughs> you catch on? Guilty conscience. It is what is known as a play on whites. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> we know, Erwin. Say, you are acting rather suspicious, Throckmorton. Uh, who, me? Yes, you. Now, you're not trying to cover up something like going off that diet and losing the bet, are you? Why, Judge Hooker, how can you think of a thing like that? Uh, excuse me, mister. How do you have it? Rare, medium, or well done? Uh, oh, uh, <clears throat> bring me the lemon juice and water. Well done, please. Oh, but I didn't mean the lemon juice and water. I meant the... Oh, yes, the toast. Well, I'll have mine rare, yes. Now, run along, girl, and tell the chef. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Gildersleeve, this looks mighty fishy. Now, Judge. I'd like to stick around a while and see just what you have ordered. Now, Judge. However, I'd be late for court, so I have to leave. Now, Judge. 
Yeah. <laughs> Bye, Gildersleeve. Uh, goodbye, Hooker. Come on, Irwin. Yeah. Oh, say, there's an idea. Oh, me? Yes, you. I got a job for you, Irwin. Stick around with Gildersleeve here for the next few days. Now, wait a minute. What's the big idea? I want Irwin here to see that you stick to the terms of our bet. But, but Judge, don't you trust me? Well... Then why waste Irwin's valuable time? Oh, he hasn't anything else to do, have you, Irwin? Not until a baseball season starts anyways. Oh, uh, are you a player? Nah, but I'm a sort of celebrity in my own right. Oh. Hey, did you ever go out to the ballpark and hear the guy who sits over near third base and yells, throw that bum out? Oh, is that you? No. I'm the guy what sits in back of him and yells down, shut up, you louse. <laughs> You stay around Mr. Gildersleeve for the next few days, Erwin. And remember, if he smokes or goes off his vegetable diet, that means he loses his bet. Yes. Okay, Judge, I'll keep my eye on him. You can rest insured. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bye, Gildy. Watch your step now, or that hundred smackers is mine. Yeah. Hey, he's a great guy there, Judge. The salt of the earth. The very salt. Yes. Hey, what's so great about the salt of the earth anyways? The salt, the salt. Well, sit down, Irwin. I'll try to explain. Yeah. Salt of the earth. You see, in ancient times... Excuse me, please. Here you are. Oh, oh, no. Uh, that's not for me, lady. Uh, this is all for my friend here. All I want is this glass of hot water and lemon juice. Uh, don't I? <laughs> uh, pitch in, Irwin. For me? Say, I'm going to like this job. <laughs> Sorry, Mr. Gildersleeve, but I still don't get it. What's so extra special about the salt of the earth? Uh, look, Irwin, you followed me around for two days, haven't you? Yeah, two days and two nights. And during most of that time, I've tried to explain it to you, haven't I? Uh-huh. And you still don't understand, do you? Uh-uh. Yes. Well, let's skip it. It's a mere bagatelle. Oh, that's a good one. What's that? Well, it's French, and it means Irwin... Wouldn't you be happier in some cozy, warm pool room? Oh, no, I like being with you. It reminds me of the time I was a deputy sheriff. Yes. <laughs> oh, you were a deputy sheriff. Mm. The judge's influence, no doubt. Yeah, I used it to take prisoners up to the state pen until I had my accident. Oh, you had an accident. Mm. Yeah. What happened? Well, one of the prisoners stole my badge and had me locked up. Yes. <laughs> hey, where you going now, Mr. Gillisleep? I'm going right here to the YMCA. Hmm? I'm thinking of taking some reducing exercises. You want to wait outside? No, I'll come along with you. I was afraid. Oh, look, they got a pool table. Yeah. Oh, maybe I can promote myself a game. Huh? Yes, sir. And maybe you can. You stick around here while I go into the gymnasium. Hey, say, fellas, how about letting me join you? All right, class, all right. All together now. A one, a two, a right, a left, a shut, the door. A what do you, you want? Seven, a eight. A, come on, speak up. I came to see about my weight. A down, up, a straight, a stoop. Why don't you join our fat men's group? Uh, now, see here, mister. I'm not that fat, and I didn't come here to be insulted. Goodbye. A one. A two, huh? a three, a four. You're going out the wrong door. Yeah. What do you mean? No, no, fast. The boys, don't dilly, dally. 
Why, sir, that door is in the alley. It, it does? Well, splendid. Now I can dodge a pest that's been bothering me. One, a two, goodbye to you. Uh, free at last. Now for the nearest cigar store. Hey, Mr. Gillespie! Hey, wait for me! Oh, jumping jeeps, Irwin. Say, this is just like being a dippity sheriff again. Uh, Irwin, weren't you playing pool? With them guys? They was playing for matches. Yes. <laughs> hey, n- now tell me, what's with the salt of the yoit? What makes it better like the salt of the sea, for instance? Excuse me, Miss Marge, but I fixed Mr. Gillsleeve's dinner. An imitation porterhouse steak made out of roasted peanuts and dandelion greens. You think he'll eat it? Oh, I don't know, Bertie. What does it taste like? Tastes like roasted peanuts and dandelion greens. <laughs> oh, poor Uncle Mort. I think he'd break down and cry if we could slip him a pork chop when that Irwin wasn't looking. Gee, I wish this whole business was over. Uncle Mort isn't any fun anymore. When he isn't groaning and complaining, he's mad at everybody or... We're trying to tear the telephone book in two. Well, I tried to get Mr. Gillsleeve to give up that uh, diet of his, but he's stubborner than a bulky mule caught in a tar pit on a hot afternoon. Why, that man, oh, there he is now. Everybody take to the cyclone cellars. Good afternoon, everybody. Hello, Bertie. How are you, my boy? And Marjorie. You're even more beautiful than usual, my dear. Uh Uh-oh, something's wrong. Uh Uh-huh. Jill, do you feel all right? Yes. Yes. Maybe you'd like to rest a while, Uncle Moore. Nonsense. I never felt better. You know what happened? That Irwin, who's been shadowing me, had to go home. He's got a stomachache. Now, maybe I can have a decent meal at last. Well, thank goodness. I've just been itching to fix you some nutriment that don't taste like sawdust. (laughs) (laughs) Now I can throw that imitation steak and fix you a real good one. Yeah, that's right. And some biscuits and jam and a hunk of pie. And hurry up, Bertie. Yes, I'm going. I better catch the door on the way. Oh, hello. Yeah, hurry up, Bertie. Uh, yes, Mr. Gillsleeve. I'm going to get you that roast peanut and dandelion green steak right now. Yeah, Bertie, what do you mean? We got a visitor, and it's Judge Hooker. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, hello there, Gillsleeve. Yeah. Irwin phoned me. He was too sick to stay with you, so I came right over myself. Why, Judge? Because I have a sneaking suspicion that you're responsible for Irwin's stomachache. Uh, yes. We better get over to the other side of the road, Leroy. Yes. Gee, they got a horse to pull theirs. Yes, I wish we had. You getting tired, Unc? Oh, no, I I can... <laughs> I can go on a while, Leroy. Oh, boy, I think this is fun. Yes, you would. <laughs> but to tell the truth, I, I don't think I'm going to lose any weight this way unless I freeze it off. What's the matter, Unc? Cold? Not any longer, Leroy. I'm... I'm numb. <laughs> I hope I'll be able to get my nose defrosted. Wait till we get to the top of this hill, Uncle Mort. It'll be keen sliding down. Well, I... I don't know if we're going to get to the top, my boy. This sled is a pretty heavy load. Oh, no, it isn't, Unc. Oh, yes, it is. Uh, how about us two changing places? But why? Well, I feel sort of funny sitting on this sled while you pull me all the way up the hill. <laughs> There you are, 
waitress. Uh, have you brought everything I ordered? Uh, yes, sir. Here it is. Uh, Cream of mushroom soup. It's good. Lobster salad. Mm, um, Filet of sole. Yeah, with marjorie sauce. Chicken a la king. My favorite fowl. Uh, baked potatoes. Yeah, big ones, too. Artichoke. Artichoke. And black bottom pie with whipped cream. Oh, boy. Say, how about the cream corn? Oh, right here, sir. Uh, at last. For the first time in days, I'll really be able to give my bicuspids a romp. And am I going to make up for all those meals I've been missing? Huh? What's that? Uh, who's there? Uncle Mort! Uncle Mort, wake up! What? If Where am I? You're still in bed and it's half past nine already. Get up, Uncle Mort! <laughs> oh, Leroy, why did you have to knock at that moment? I was just about to have a dream of a dinner. <laughs> the big box for, Uncle Mort? Oh, that's a steam cabinet, Marjorie. What you gonna steam, Unc? Me. <laughs> I'm gonna lose that ten pounds if I have to poach myself parboiled. Uh, I'd, be, I'd be careful if I were you, Uncle. Oh, it's so simple, Leroy could operate it. Gee, can I? In a moment. Now run along, Marjorie, while we try it out. All right, but don't try to lose too much at once, Uncle. Yeah. How much weight have you lost so far, Uncle? Well, I don't know quite for sure, Leroy. These bathroom scales have such small figures, it's hard to read from where I stand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's hard to read around a curve, too. What? <laughs> what do you mean, Leroy? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, my chest does get in the way a little. <laughs> Just step on the scales now and I'll read the figures. Oh, a capital idea, Leroy. <laughs> Careful. Stand still now. Huh? There, it it reads 213. Oh, my goodness. I've taken on weight, not off. Are you sure? If sure, I'm sure. Here, hold my robe, Leroy. I'm getting into this steam box right now. Yeah. Now, now please turn that knob on the side, Leroy. Like this? Yes. Uh, I can feel the weight dropping off already. Uh, turn it on some more, Leroy. Okay. <coughs> it's foggy, isn't it? What? Uh, what? Don't, don't turn it on anymore. I can't hear you. What did you say? <coughs> uh, don't turn it on anymore. Oh, more. Oh. Uh, stop, Leroy. It feels like I'm on fire. Fire? Okay. Oh, no, not fire. <laughs> stop it. Stop it. Hey, what's the trouble, huh? What's cooking? I am. <laughs> It turned down the steam. I can't. It's so foggy, I can't find the knob. Uh, open the door and let me out. Where are they? I can't see anything. Uh, hurry up, Leroy. I'm roasting. Do something. Oh, gee whiz, what do I do? Get a plumber? No, get a doctor. <laughs> I never heard of such foolishness in all my experience. Yes, Doctor. A man your size and shape killed a sleeve trying to boil himself down to skin and bones. I did? And you, Judge Hooker, trying to gamble your friend's health away. I'm sorry. I never thought it would come to this. Why, as a result of this foolish wager... Mr. Gildersleeve is not only suffering from malnutrition, nervous exhaustion, and anemia, but also from blisters. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I wish I'd never made that bet. Would it make you feel any better if I called it off, Gildy, old man? It would it. That's the nicest thing that's happened to me in a week. And it's mighty sporting of you, Judge Hooker. That's all right. And better rest now, Gildersleeve. I'll be back tomorrow. Yeah. Come on, Judge. All right. 
Goodbye, Throckmorton. I'll phone to find out how you're getting along. Yeah, thanks, Judge. Goodbye, Doc. Goodbye. Uh, <laughs> uh, Leroy. Yes, Uncle Mort? How are you feeling? Much better. The judge just canceled our bet. Gee, that means you saved $100. Yes, but I still can't understand why I gained weight. I dieted and exercised. I didn't smoke. And yet I went up from 225 when I began to 230 now. Oh, no, no, you don't weigh 230. I said 213. What? You mean I lost 12 pounds? Where's that Judge Hooker? Wait till I get my hands on that little watcher. I'll kill him. <laughs> The great Gildersleeve will be with us again in a few minutes. But first, these days it's more important than ever to know the facts about the foods you buy. So here are a few facts about parquet margarine, made by Kraft, so you can judge its goodness yourself. First, parquet margarine is a wholesome vegetable margarine, made of refined American vegetable oils that are highly nutritious and rich in energy value. These oils give parquet margarine its wholesome nourishment and make it one of the best energy foods you can serve. Another thing, parquet margarine is a reliable year-round source of vitamin A. Now, that's important. It means that summer and winter, there are always 9,000 units of vitamin A in every pound of parquet, and never less. As for parquet margarine's flavor, one taste will tell you how delicate and appetizing it is. Kraft, of course, is famous for fine-tasting foods, and parquet is no exception. Yes, thousands of housewives have found that parquet is the margarine with the delicious flavor, grand for table use and for cooking, because it tastes so downright good. Now, nourishing and good tasting as parquet margarine is, it's economical too, so surely you should try it. Tomorrow, ask for parquet margarine. Just say parquet, P-A-R-K-A-Y. <laughs> I'm so glad you've given up all those nasty old resolutions. Yes, yeah, so am I, Marjorie. Now, I've got a surprise for you. Oh, surprise you have? Well, I love surprises. All right. Close your eyes. Yeah, like this? Yes. Now, open your mouth. Uh, like that? Yes. Now, close it again. Yes. What's this? One of the cigars I gave you for Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> now, you can smoke as many as you want. Isn't that dandy? Good night, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Original music heard on this program was composed and conducted by William Randolph. This is Jim Bannon speaking for the Kraft Cheese Company and inviting you to be with us again next week at this same time for the further adventures of The Great Gildersleeve. This is the National Broadcasting Company. There is an original radio broadcast of The Great Gildersleeve, January 4th, 1942. It's called The Diet, and uh, you heard Hal Perry as Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve, sponsored by Kraft Foods, is heard 
on NBC. And uh, we, uh, we have a lot of Gildersleeve shows. It was on the air a long time. Probably have 500 or more um, great Gildersleeve episodes. And we often have them as part of our Classic Radio Club. Classic Radio Club is a really fun club for our listeners. So you are invited to join the Classic Radio Club. To learn more about it, go to ClassicRadioClub.com. You can get 10 Classic Radio shows that I handpick each and every month from my library of over 100,000 shows. I pick very special shows each and every month, and then I write very copious liner notes about each show. And you'll get those shows sent to you via digital download, like Lisa likes to collect them. That's how you like them, right, Lisa? I like the digital downloads, Carl. And then if you like CDs, you will get five CDs each and every month with the 10 shows in a collector case. And then that case has photos of the stars that are in those shows. Really a nice presentation the way we do it. Um, very professionally produced. So every month you'll get a CD set, five CDs in a collector case, or the 10 shows via digital download. Either way, you get all the liner notes, and it's a great club. And you will get special shows that I pick each and every month. Um, so go to ClassicRadioClub.com. And the very first month, it's only a dollar to join. We want you to experience it. So one dollar, you'll get ten shows via digital download, or you'll get the five CDs for a dollar. You do have to pay shipping and handling for the CDs, but you get the CD set, five CDs for a dollar. So go to ClassicRadioClub.com. Sound good, Lisa? Yeah. Then good to know also that those digital links, they never expire. Nope. So I can keep them on my computer and build my own classic Radio Club collection, and soon I'll turn into Carl Amari. Well, you don't <laughs> want to do that, believe me. I got about 100,000 more shows to go, and I'll be you. <laughs> yeah, we're always getting new shows, too. In fact, you know, I was thinking of this earlier because of Abbott Costello. Remember, we played the right. Who's on First Routine? So. There, there is a. It's a true story. What happened was uh, Costello's son. He was an infant son. He Costello was at the um, radio studio rehearsing for that night's broadcast, and his son crawled, fell into the pool, and drowned. Terrible tragedy, and this really happened. And so he, you know, found out before the broadcast. So they were talking about bringing in Red Skelton maybe to do the show for Costello with Abbott on that broadcast. And he said, no, the show must go on. I will do the show and then, you know, deal with the, this situation. So he did the show live. And then at the end of the show, uh, Bud Abbott came on the air and said, you know, folks, I want you. I want you to know what a hero and what a what a brave man Costello is. His son had passed away today, you know, drowned, and all this, you know, he's on the air. It was all done kind of live, and I had read about this. Well, I just acquired that show. Mm-hmm. Just acquired that, and I'd listened to the end of it. And sure enough, oh. yeah, Bud Abbott comes on there and talks about it. But that, but you know, not that that's you know, it, but it's. A very unique show because yeah. they talk about it in all the books about Abbott Costello and how this happened. Well, we just we just discovered this show. We found the show, and this is happening all the time. Um, there's so many 
um, because we're working with the Abbott and Costello estate. They actually found the master recording of this, you know, transcription disc. So we got that. We had it transcribed, and we have that broadcast. Yeah, what a tragedy, Carl. Yeah, that really, really is. All right, let's take a quick break. Then it's more here on the WGN Radio Theater. And now the purple dusk of twilight time Steals across the meadows of my heart High up in the sky The little stars climb Always reminding me That we're apart You wander down the lane and far away Leaving me a song that will not die Love is now the stardust of yesterday The music of the years gone by Good old Nat King Cole there. Yeah, stardust. Ah, Lisa Wolf. Every Saturday night here, 10 p.m. till 3 o'clock in the morning, playing all your favorite classic radio shows and some music, too. Some uh, Nat King Cole there. Um, In our next hour, the Hall of Fantasy supernatural uh, episode that originally was broadcast out of this radio station, WGN, back in 1947. You won't want to miss that. Um, yeah, so that's coming your way. We'll also have just the facts about the year 1947. That is in our next hour. Hour 5 of the WGN Radio Theater. We are here every single Saturday night from 10 p.m. until 3 o'clock in the morning, five full hours. Classic radio each and every week here on the greatest radio station on the planet, WGN. All your favorites, The Shadow, Jack Benny, The Whistler, Inner Sanctum, Boston Blackie, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. That's Mike's favorite show. And the Hall of Fantasy. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) This hour, the Hall of Fantasy. Actually, the great thing about this radio show that we're going to play in a few minutes, the Hall of Fantasy, it was broadcast from WGN. Now, it was not in this building because we're in the new building, but it was in the Tribune Tower uh, building uh, in their performance studio there. So pretty cool, huh, Yeah, we've come full circle for sure. That was uh, broadcast in 1947. We'll have it for you, a rebroadcast of Markham on the Hall of Fantasy. Good mystery coming your way. Hey, how is your uh, Vistro doing? Oh, yeah, we should talk about Vistro. Vistro. It's Vistro, V-E-E-S-T-R-O.com. It is a really special food delivery service. It's not like the others because it's all vegan organic food. Yeah, I know know, you're all about that. But you really don't have to be about that to appreciate Vistro. It's just cooked from fresh organic ingredients. They have chefs. They deliver it frozen right to your door. I can't eat a hamburger with Vistro, though. No, but they're special. Veggie burgers. (laughs) I know. You know, there's a substitute for everything. It's probably delicious. Probably the veggie burger would be just as good as a regular burger, I would imagine. Actually, it's better because it's not greasy. It's healthy. It's all plant-based. And it comes frozen, so it's very fresh. 
fresh. You're talking me into it, Lisa. There's no chopping, no cooking, no cleanup. You oh. put it right in the microwave or the oven, and it's all freshly the three prepared. three no's. No cooking, no chopping, no cooking. Wait, you said cooking twice, twice. but that works. <laughs> but, <laughs> you, know. you know, you can choose from high-protein <laughs> meals or gluten-free meals or low-calorie meals. So it's great. Give it a shot. There's country fried chicken and a Tuscan calzone and Asian noodle salad. All right, salad. what do you do? You go Some to their website, favorites. Vistro? Go to the website, vistro.com. It's yeah. V-E-E-S-T-R-O.com. Check it out. You will be happy that and you they, did. And they have all kinds of plans. You can, yep. you can order whatever right. plan you want. No commitment. I'm thinking I might try it. Fully customizable. You choose only the only the items that in. And are I know you are you. loving the food. I love the. It's food. It's like really high quality, super delicious food, and huh? that's how I roll. All right, very <laughs> cool. All right, well, uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to have our segment, just the facts, and then it's the Hall of Fantasy. Stick around. Ladies and gentlemen. The story you're about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. This is our Just the Facts segment, sponsored by Cat's Pride. This is Hour 5. We will be playing the Hall of Fantasy from 1947, and therefore I have some really great historical facts directly from 1947. First off, we have a really influential song from that year. Let's hear it. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from the California to the New York Island. So uh, that is This Land is Your Land this by land Woody. This Land is Your Land. This, this land, land is My land. land. Woody Guthrie, of course. Mm-hmm. And when he started writing the song in 1940, the last line... It took him the, seven years to write seven, the song? It did, Man. <laughs> He's slow, you know. Uh-huh. It takes a while to write a good song. Wow. So the last line in the song when he wrote the chorus was, God blessed America for me. Mm. But he eventually changed that into This Land Was Made for You and Me and evolved into a protest anthem as generations of folk singers perform the song. But it's often misinterpreted as a patriotic song, which it really wasn't written as. Wow, I had no idea. I would have thought it was. Yeah, this is all about his beliefs about the working class versus the upper wealthy um, class. So it's, it's quite an anthem. Huh. Yep. Seven years to write that song. <laughs> it took seven years. <laughs> and before the Flintstones, yes. the first couple shown in bed was actually from a sitcom called it. What in 1947? Dick Van Dyke, wasn't it? Wasn't well, that the first? Oh, wait. Was it Dick Van Dyke? Or maybe no. it was, uh, was it uh, Betty White? Her show? No, what it's called it? Mary Kay and Johnny. I didn't know that. No, now, I had didn't no idea. either. Mm-mm. So Mary Kay and Johnny is considered to be the first American sitcom on national television that showed a couple in bed together. Mm. And it ran from 47 to 50, and it was broadcast live in both 15 and 30-minute formats. I've on never heard of that show. Either. I was going to ask you, it was on Dumont Mm-mm. Television Network yeah. before moving to CBS and then to uh, NBC. Wow. And I had never heard of it, hoping so that it you did. So it started in 1947. It sure did. Uh, um, it was a real not life couple. Not a lot of people were watching TV in 1947, no, very early, I can tell you that. real life couple, Mary Kay Stearns and Johnny Stearns. Mm-hmm. And they lived in Greenwich Village and mm-hmm. uh, very successful. Yeah. A little before our time. Yep. And here's really a really interesting, cool fact. Every California license 
license plate since 1947 has been made in the infamous what? What prison? Alcatraz? Fal- Folsom State oh, Prison. Oh, really? I don't know. Right. Because well, Alcatraz is in California. I mean, it's in, you know, San Francisco. Well, this is where inmates produced a 45,000 to 50,000 plates every single day. Are you kidding yeah. me? Yeah. So since yeah. 1947, uh, inmates have manufactured California's license plates for the DMV and their partnership with this uh, Folsom State Prison. They're able to provide productive work assignments for uh, over 100 sure. inmates every well, day in Well, if you were in, in jail factory. all day long, you would, you'd probably want to work in the factory. You'd probably like, hey, I'll do that. Well, it makes you know? perfect sense. You put them to work and it makes perfect makes sense. Makes the time. Go makes the time go, and it's very useful let's for the state never, of California. Let's hope we never have we'll to never find out. Find out. <laughs> Don't want to go to jail. I would not do well in jail. I, I can just tell you that right now. No, I know you no, would not. I would not. <laughs> All right, Lisa, thank you very much. Thank you, uh, 1947, yep. which is the year of uh, Hall of Fantasy broadcast we're about to play right now. Hall of Fantasy, you know, it was uh, it was a mutual series, uh, but the great thing about it, so it aired all over the mutual network, but it aired right from this radio station. It originated in the performance studios at WGN. Came to radio in 1947, lasted until 1953. It was written, produced, and directed by Richard Thorne. It was his baby, you know, and for most of its run, it was broadcast right here, and Carl Grayson was one of the stars of the show. Carl Grayson, along with Marty McNeely, supplied the voice for the Creature Features narration. Remember growing up watching Creature Feature? I, I sure oh, do. Man. That's that's all, that's our generation. That scared Carl. me as a kid. Crazy. Oh my gosh, Creature Feature on WGN yep. Television. Well, that voice, you know, Grizzly Goose and blah blah blah. You know, well that was. Was all Carl Grayson, who you will hear in this broadcast. and there were, But there were two guys. Marty McNeely also did it. Now, the stories on Hall of Fantasy usually had supernatural themes and were always very frightening. They uh, also, classics of literature were sometimes dramatized, uh, but then there were also original stories that Thorne wrote himself. This one is called Markham, and it's from April 27th, 1947. We're going to listen to this uninterrupted. Here is the Hall of Fantasy. Ladies and gentlemen, the Granite Furniture Company with stores in Sugar House, Murray, and Provo presents... The Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the series of radio dramas dedicated to the supernatural, the unusual, and the unknown. Come with me, my friends. We shall ascend to the world of the unknown and forbidden, down to the depths where the veil of time is lifted, and the supernatural reigns as king. Come with me and listen to the tale of... Markheim. The Granite Furniture Company brings you the Hall of Fantasy... Listen now to original tales of the imagination and some of the classics of the supernatural as we take you down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy to the mysterious realms of the unknown. These are stories of eerie and fantastic thrills brought to you by your friends at the Granite Furniture Stores. And now for tonight's story, an adaptation of Robert Louis Stevenson's Markheim. The 
they said that Markheim's first great crime was that he had committed murder. That's hardly true, for no man can kill his fellow until he first twists the knife in his own heart. This is the story of Markheim. He was a gambler accustomed to lightning shifts of fortune. But on the eve of his greatest triumph, he couldn't resist that final spin of the wheel. It was his life against the future. He wanted the decision to come swiftly, as it had always done before. But this time, the wheel turned tortuously slow for Markheim. And once set into motion, no power on earth could halt it. It was Christmas Eve. Markheim was happy to be towed along on Angela's little leash. She loved him, or what she knew of him. Angela was quite aware of the power of her smile, and Markheim was aware of the fact that she'd been leisurely and charmingly spoiled. But even if it had been a great chain that had led him into this lovely garden, instead of a warm, sweet smile, he'd have resisted no more than he did now. For this leash would lead him to a fortune. More money than he'd ever dreamed existed in all the casinos in the world. Besides, he was in love with Angela. Mark, when do you plan to speak to Papa? Very soon, dearest. There are a few things I want to clear up first. It won't take long. Just a few days at the most. Tomorrow, perhaps? Tomorrow? Well, that's pretty short notice, darling. I'm afraid that I... Oh, I want it tomorrow. Yes, but why? What's so significant about tomorrow? I had thought to wait just a few more... Oh, tomorrow's just as good as any other day. In fact, it's better. It's Christmas. It's tomorrow or never. Angela... What are you saying? Oh, don't look so frightened, darling. I was only joking. Ah, that's better. Only it will be tomorrow, Mark, won't it? You always get your own way. Always, darling. But I wouldn't have insisted if I didn't think it would make us both happy. And you think we'll be happier if I ask your father tomorrow? Of course. There's no need to wait, and, and I want this for a Christmas present. Christmas present? Yes. Oh, and speaking of Christmas presents, I have a very nice one for you. Oh? Not too nice, I hope. I mean, I hope it wasn't too... Costly? Oh, but it was very. I wish you hadn't, Angela. That is, well, I have something for you, too. You have? What is it? Well, I... Well, you like it. It's... it's... Yes, it's very nice. Now it's my turn. You shouldn't have done it. Nothing is too good for you. Nothing. I hope it isn't too expensive. expensive? <laughs> well, it was. But uh, it's just a little trinket. I, I... Whatever it is, Mark, it'll be very nice. But if you weren't such a successful member of the stock exchange, I'd scold you for spending too much money on me. Stock exchange? Oh, oh, oh yes, quite. Well, Angela, I think I'd better be going. Oh, so soon? Yes, I, I really must. Then I won't detain you. But I want you here early tomorrow. Come just as soon as you possibly can. <laughs> the iron rule of Angela. Ah, but I love it, darling. Until tomorrow? Tomorrow. As Markheim made his way through the dark streets, the chill, damp fog soon dispersed the warmth he'd felt in the rich comfort of Angela. And the last word he'd spoken to her as he'd taken his leave seemed to mock him as he traveled in the night. His futile gropings for happiness seemed to slap him full in the face with each new wave of the night gray night mist. For a moment, he thought to return to his foul, dingy little room, barren and ugly though it was. The thought of it made him shudder. Any other time, he might have found some comfort in his hateful little iron bed. Another night, he could have slept and dreamed of fabulous fortune, of an endless flood of gambler's luck making him richer with every spin of the wheel. But there was no time for that now. 
For tomorrow was, he cursed the inconvenience of this moment. Tomorrow was Christmas. Suddenly, as if some henchman of the devil had whispered into his ear, Markheim heard the name that had been synonymous with resentment in his heart. That name seemed to strike faint but unmistakable sounds in his brain. It was very faint at first, like the soft, tinkling snap of an icicle when it breaks. But it soon became a giant thing that loomed up so forcibly it was almost physical. It came without warning out of the thick fog of his brain, and Markheim suddenly found the name on his lips. Zeigler. 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 What do you want? Ah, it's you, Markheim. Let me in, Zeigler. On Christmas Eve? Can't you see I'm closed? Open up. I've got to see you right away. All right. What kind of trouble are you in this time? Well, come on in. I don't want all that cold and damp creeping in. I've enough aches already. Yes. Merry Christmas. What's your end? You do a pretty good business here, don't you, Zeigler? You didn't come to talk about my books. What did you come for? I told you the last time that I wouldn't take any more of your stolen goods. I didn't come to sell anything, Zeigler. My uncle's cabinets are disgustingly empty these days. Uh, he's moved his collection. I don't wonder at that. Your uncle is a remarkable collector. His items were rare indeed. It must have been quite a blow to him when he discovered that they were disappearing so methodically. <laughs> it was more of a blow to me, I assure you. He booted me clean out of the place. I was taking an awful chance myself handing that stuff. An awful chance. Mm, but at an awful profit, Zagler. What good's a profit when you once get the yard after you? Well, if you didn't come here to sell, what did you come for? To buy. I want to buy a Christmas present for a lady. Mm, you pay dearly coming in on me like this. You know I've put up my shutters and I'm refusing business. You won't refuse my business, Zagler. You won't be getting any bargains either. You'll have to pay for both my time and your rather a surly manner, young fellow. I suppose you can pay him? Don't worry about that. Then you can pay. It's someone's worry. I've done very well in the stock exchange. And likely as not, I'll do much better soon. My errand today is very simple. I'm really quite sorry, Zagler, that I have to disturb you this way, but it's a little matter I overlooked until this late hour. I must have this little compliment ready before morning. And, you know, a man would be a fool to deliberately harm his chances of a wealthy marriage. Well, let that be it, then. You've been a good customer, and if you have a chance, you should tell me for a fortunate marriage. I don't want to be an obstacle. Now, uh, here's a nice object. You'd let you certain to favor it. It's a hand mirror. Guaranteed 15th century. It's from a fine collection. Whose collection, Zagler? In the interest of my customer, I withhold the name, if you don't mind. He was, shall we say, somewhat like yourself. The nephew... Of a remarkable collector. The pointed remarks of this unscrupulous old dealer suddenly flushed Markheim's calm with waves of passionate resentment. But they passed, leaving nothing but a slightly emotional residue in a slight nervous trembling in his hands. He took the mirror Zeigler held out to him. Surely you do not propose this for a Christmas present. Why not? Your lady should be very happy to have such a fine item. And every time she looks at herself in it, she'll think of her sterling husband. Your manner is likely to cost you something before long, Zagler. So you suggest a thing like this. Look at it. Look at yourself in it. Though I dare say you'd look little better any other way. But look at it. Your future lady must be difficult to please, sir. I am buying a lady's Christmas present. Not some monstrous souvenir of the sins and follies of the past. Certainly not that grim thing. You 
weren't actually serious about pawning that off on me, were you? Quite serious, sir. What are you made of, Zeigler? What keeps your dry old heart at work these overtime years? You certainly must have a few thoughts now and then of something beside your miserable little existence. Are you joking with me, Markheim? You'll find it on the sale price if you are. <laughs> Everything about you can be found on the sale price, Zagler. Come, what's the purpose of this talk? Christmas Eve, man. See how the world scurries by outside? They're all touched with a very warm, friendly spirit. What does your life consist of tonight but a hand for grabbing money and a safe for hoarding it? Is that all? You've drunk too much to the health of your lady, I think. Ah, then you have been in love. Tell me of those golden moments of yours, Zeigler. Tell me all about them. I have no time for such things. I have no time for this foolishness either. Do you take the glass or not? Yeah, but let's not be hasty. A pleasant talk, a pleasant walk. Uh, how does that go? Well, pleasant it is, Zeigler, and I must not hurry away from any pleasure, even one as doubtful as this. Each instant is a precipice, Zeigler, a very high precipice. If we hurry, we fall and dash ourselves to a thousand meaningless pieces. Yes, if we hurry, we fall, Zeigler. Let's take our time this fine evening. Let us tear away the masks that hide us from each other. Who knows? We might even be friends. I have my books to balance tonight, Markheim. Either make your purchase, or I have to thank you to leave the shop. To be sure, there is no time for being friends, is there? Show me something else, then. Show me something else, Zeigler. There was something in Markheim's voice just then. It couldn't have been the words themselves. It was a tone or a light that flashed in his eye. But it filled the little dealer with an unexplainable terror. He'd turned and was about to climb the small ladder that would take him to a little object art in a higher shelf. When suddenly, Markheim poised a little dagger high in the air. It flashed only a fraction of a lightning bolt. This... <laughs> For you, Zeigler, and a very Merry Christmas. Zeigler thrashed at the shelves like a chicken. Then he fell to the floor, and flesh seemed to telescope into flesh as he settled into a senseless little pile. Markheim stared at it through eyes that had suddenly seen too much. A single tick of the old clock seemed almost to buffet him into unconsciousness. His lips parted to speak. Must not hurry. Each instant, the precipice. Yes. Zeigler, stand up! Stand up and speak to me! You are listening to a radio adaptation by Bob Olson of Markheim by Robert Louis Stevenson on tonight's journey down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy. Brought to you by your friends at the Granite Furniture Company with stores in Sugar House... Murray and Provo. And now back to tonight's story of Markheim. Markheim the gambler wagered his life and became Markheim the murderer. In one swift blow, he'd cut himself away from any part of the world he'd known. That's why no one can tell his story now but Markheim himself. I stood there, my hand still clinging loosely to the dagger. That hand that seemed to have no relationship to the rest of my body. I looked about me. The candle on the counter caught a chill draft and was wagging like the tail of an excited puppy. I steadied myself, for the room was heaving and tossing like a schooner in a storm. Hundreds of feet away, it seemed, the door was slightly ajar. 
Through this opening, a long, slim finger of light pointed accusingly at the very spot I stood. I leaped aside. A shiver of fright shocked through me as I realized the stupidity of the motion. I looked at the body of Zeigler. It lay there like a listless sack of sawdust. As suddenly as had the fright, a wave of calm came over me. I looked again at the body. It was nothing. Yes, there was nothing there to be afraid of. A hunk of lifeless something that had once been a man. The clock ticked on, but no longer affected the day of this thing on the floor. Yes, it was nothing. It had suddenly lost meaning to Zeigler, to the shop, to everyone but me. But that security didn't last. I looked again, saw the deep color forming about this haggard heap. That blood. It was still alive. What if it found a voice? What if this flesh should raise a cry that could be heard all over England and thence... Where? Then it would take up its endless flight around the earth. It would never be still again. Never. Time. Time. I must have time. Oh, but time had such a raucous voice. Yes, what is time? A new precipice each instant. Each tick of the clock was a new danger. I picked up the candle, started about the room, filling my pockets with the treasures of art that Zeigler had gained so craftily and guarded so fiendishly. I saw things that terrified me. Things that turned out to be my own shadow. I'd catch a reflection of myself in a rack of mirrors, rich imported glasses that sent a new fear to wilt my nerves. For each time I looked, I saw a hostile sea of my own eyes spying on me. A thousand questions flashed across my world of hysteria. Why had I used a knife? Why hadn't I chosen a more quiet hour? Why had I killed him at all? And then there were more. Where was the servant girl now? When would she be back? How much time did I have? Yes, how much time? When would the world know of what I had done? When would Angela know? Oh, you fool. My brain became a racetrack for nightmares. There seemed to be something terrifying about the normal as ever rhythm of the footsteps out on the street. They must know about the thundering riot in this house. How could they help it? I began to fear nature herself. I expected her to break her own laws to accomplish my own personal destruction. Yes, what if the walls should suddenly fail to hide me? If the prying eyes of London should gain the power to see beyond nature's barriers? <laughs> then, then another vision came to me in this room that was pulsating so with clamor and silence alike. Yes, yes, all the old women of London started to rock feverishly in their chairs and began to weave a rope with which I was soon to be hung. I knew I was tottering on the brink of the final shock that would send me screaming my guilt to the world if I didn't take hold of myself. But one thing I was rapturously grateful for, I was alone. I was alone. <laughs> no. Zeigler, open up. Answer your door, Zeigler. Thank heavens. He's gone. Time. Time. Yes, I, I must have time. Others will come. The girl. 
I must get the money. No time to waste. I walked over to the body, shoved it with my foot. It rolled over crazily and took on a queer, twisted posture. The face was pale like wax. I remembered the wax museum I'd seen as a lad, and that memory robbed the scene of its grotesque quality. I took new courage. I saw myself as a boy. <laughs> yes, how horrified I'd been at those realistic reproductions of famous murders. Even the music came back to me, the monotonous chant of the calliope. The time came for me to act or run, but I didn't run. I grabbed the keys from Zeigler's coat pocket and started up the stairs that led to his private apartment. There were 24 steps and 24 separate tortures that led to the drawing room where I knew I'd find the safe. As I walked, I seemed to hear the echo of another footstep coming from behind me. Now I was at the top. I pulled open the door, entered, and bolted it behind me. The sense that I was not alone in this house was about to drive me mad. I longed to be in my shoddy little room, away from the eyes that were constantly dancing about in this house. Every man who walked became an avenger and sought stealthily for some scrap of evidence that would curse me forever. I thought of Angela, not long, just the length of a breath or so, but I heard her voice in hollow mockery. Tomorrow or never, Ma. Tomorrow or never. Yes. She said she was only joking. She thought she was only joking. I was before the safe. The finale of this little drama. I fumbled with the keys. There must have been fifty in all. And again, the rush of time began to make me tremble with uncontrollable anxiety. Time, time, time. If I ran out of time, this nightmare could have no meaning at all. I shot a glance at the door. Nothing stirred. Yes, I was satisfied that I must be alone. It was quiet here. Even my heart began to slow down a little. Suddenly, another sound broke the stillness. It came from the nearby church. The organ was playing a familiar hymn. I listened... heard it, a sound to freeze a scream in its making. The knob on the door was turning. Someone was going to enter this room. I was caught in a vice of terror. Slowly the door opened. And there, there was a face without a body staring at me. Who are you? Did you call me? I stared. I could do nothing else. The face seemed to swim before me. It seemed a familiar face. No, no, it wasn't familiar either. Oh, what was that face? It belonged to neither heaven nor earth. What do you want of me? I came to see you. See me? How did you know that I was here? You told me. I told you? Not directly, perhaps. Then you really do know me? Right down to the soul. Are you the devil? Does it matter? Oh, yes, but... But you knew me some time ago. <laughs> Yes, thank heaven you don't know about the... Murder. Oh, but I do. I came to warn you that the servant girl is after a sweetheart early tonight and is on her way home now. Now? Yes. Shall I tell you what she brings with her for your Christmas? What? The gallows. Now you must hurry. Shall I tell you where to mine the money? For, for what price? It's a Christmas gift. <gasps> what? What are you going to do with me? You know that I'm really not evil... I had no heart for these things. Yours will probably be a deathbed repentance. 
I have no concern with that. I'm interested in you only as long as you are alive. But, but why do you do this at all? Can't you see that my hands are red? Don't you realize that I've murdered the little dealer? Yes. Then why do you stop with me? Because your name is Markheim. Yes, yes, yes. My name is Markheim. You know that I'm made up of evil and of good. You'll see that they don't destroy the good to avenge the evil. You will help me, won't you? This money you're about to take, how will you use it? On the stock exchange. But that's where you've already lost thousands. Yes, but this time I have a sure thing. You will lose again, Markheim. You know? I do. But, but I'll save out half. You will lose that, too. Oh, if that happens, if I do lose again, what next? Yes, yes, I'll start over with Angela. You have lived for 36 years, Markheim. Fifteen years ago, you would have shuddered at the thought of stealing. Three years ago, the name of murder would have made you ill. Who knows, Markheim, what you might embrace in the next five years? But I still have good in me. Tell me, have you grown any better at all in the past few years? I can remember when I was a boy. Yes, I still love the things that I loved then. But are you better than you were then? No, 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 no. And you still want me to help you get the money? Remember three years ago, Markheim? Weren't you seen in a little chapel? Yes, yes, I was there. I meant to go back. And didn't you raise your voice louder than the others in the hymn? Yes, but... Where are you going? We part company here. Time has run out. That's the maid, you see. The maid? What shall I do? Why not do what you did to the dealer? Here's your last great danger. One more swift blow, and you can finish at your leisure. Don't. Don't. Don't go. Don't leave me. He, he's gone. My last great danger. Yes. There is nothing left to do, but... I took the little dagger from my coat pocket and crept down the stairs. Twenty-four steps to... where? Tomorrow or never, Mark. Tomorrow or never. I can do it quickly. I'll tell her old Zeigler is ill. Yes, now, now don't crack a smile, Markheim. Whatever you do, don't overact. But curse the thing that made me lose all this precious time with talk. Yes, too late now, though. Much too late. Too, too late, late, too late. There's no more time for you, Markheim. You again? Who are you, anyway? The door, Markheim. Here's your chance. Open the door. First, tell me who you are. Don't you know? Don't you know, really? No, no, I don't. My name is... Markheim. No! Then you're... The door, Markheim! Answer the door! Hello, is Mr. Seigler in? Are you the maid? Uh, yes. Then you'd... You'd better go for the police. I... I've just murdered your master. So runs the tale of Markheim. Remember to join us next week at a new time for another journey down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy. Tonight's program was adapted by Robert Olson from the story by Robert Louis Stevenson. Heard tonight were Carl Grayson as Markheim, Richard Harcourt as the narrator, Beth Calder as Angela, and Richard Thorne as Zeigler. Musical background was provided by Earl Donaldson. The engineer was Nephi Sorensen. 
These programs are produced and directed by Richard Thorne. Remember, be with us again next Sunday night on call at a new time. Just one hour later at 9.30 p.m., when the Granite Furniture Stores in Sugar House, Murray, and Provo will take you on another journey down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy. And that's the Hall of Fantasy from April 27, 1947, with Markham. And uh, that was originally broadcast right here, WGN. Uh, April 27, 1947, and in the cast, Carl Grayson, Richard Harcourt, Beth Calder, Robert Olson. Richard Thorne starred in it also. He was the uh, producer and director of this series. A really good, frightening, supernatural story on the Hall of Fantasy. And you know what? The Hall of Fantasy and other mystery shows like The Shadow and Suspense, Inner Sanctum, they're all part of the Classic Radio Club, and if you want to be a member of the Classic Radio Club, just go to our website, ClassicRadioClub.com. You'll not only get mysteries, but you will get sci-fi, you'll get drama, you'll get uh, comedy shows, Western shows, the entire gamut. Every single month, you will receive 10 Classic radio shows, digitally remastered. They will sound amazing. Mike Costella does all the digital remastering of these shows. We always work with the original uh, master uh, episode because we're working with the rights holders. So we get the masters, then Mike digitally remasters them. And um, you name it, you get it in the Classic Radio Club. Plus, I write detailed liner notes. And um, Lisa likes the digital downloads, right, Lisa? I do. I appreciate having the links. They never expire, so I can keep them on my computer and uh, Bluetooth them in my car anytime I want to. I find that method a little bit easier. But I I know a lot of people appreciate having the actual disc in their hand, and that's why we offer both. Yep. So the CDs, you'll get five CDs each month, and they're in a collector case, and there's pictures of the stars from those radio shows on the cover of the CD case. It's really a nice presentation. You get the liner notes, and it's sent to you each and every month. So if you join the Classic Radio Club, you will be sent 10 shows each and every month unless you cancel. So go to ClassicRadioClub.com. That's ClassicRadioClub.com. And join the hundreds and hundreds of your fellow listeners that are part of this club. All right, let's take a quick break. Then it's more on the WGN Radio Theater. Hey, Lisa, what are you doing August 1st, 2020? I'm heading to Bermuda on Oceana Cruise. You're going too? Yeah, we're both going. Wait, we're going going together? Yep. Okay. Classic radio cruise. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yep. We are going August 1st, like you said, 2020, at least from New York, on Oceana Cruises, which is one of the most luxurious cruises known for their fine cuisine and top-notch entertainment. Yep. We're going to explore Bermuda. We're going to eat a lot. That's what we're going to do. You're going to eat a lot. I'm going to explore Bermuda. I know they have pink sand beach which yeah. are supposed to oh, be yeah. beautiful. Can't wait. And um, we're going to make it a classic radio cruise. So we're going to spend time getting to know our listeners. We're going to have a cocktail party and a classic radio reenactment and tr- prizes trivia and trivia questions. contests. Contest, yeah. We're going to really make this a really special yeah, vacation. Get to know our listeners. Yeah. yeah, we want you to come with us. This is going to be a one-of-a-kind vacation. And don't miss it because I don't know if it will ever happen again. This yep. is really unique. Yeah, well, we're doing it this year. Hopefully we'll do it every year, but we're doing it this year. And I'll tell you what, 
It's selling out. It is selling out. In fact, there are some categories completely sold out. Folks, this is a limited time thing. Give us a a call at Keen Luxury Travel, 800-856-1155. They will take care of you. They will answer all your questions. Keen Luxury Travel. Kristen Evans is wonderful. She's the one kind of spearheading all of this. And we're going to Bermuda August 1st this year. Come with us. It's for a week. It's all-inclusive. It's going to be amazing. You're going to love it. Go to Bermuda. I've never been to Bermuda. I've never been there. we got yeah. a, a great group rate that you great can only rate. get through yep. Keen Luxury yep. Travel for this classic radio That's right. cruise. Special Check rate. it out. Yeah, and terrific food, all kinds of uh, great dining and all, and, and just a lot of fun. We're going to have a blast. 800-856-1155. 800-856-1155. Or you can go to our website, wgnradiotheater.com, and there's a banner there. You can scroll down, click the banner. It'll give you all the information and the 800 number. All right, uh, what's on the agenda next week, Lisa? Do you have it handy? If not, I do. I Tales see. of the Texas Rangers. Yeah, we've got the Phil Harrison Alice Faye Show, the Lives of Harry Lime, the General Electric Theater, and Rocky Fortune. Yep, we'll be here next Saturday starting at 10 p.m. Don't miss it. Thanks for listening, everyone.